Mm-mm. Can anyone hear me? Okay, Annie, seems like they they can hear me. Um, We do not know what the technical issue is at this time, but I can assure you that Annie's on top of it. I want to welcome you to the show today. We have a good lineup on Southern Sense. We have Bob Record, who's the founder of the Total Life Impact Ministries, who helps people and organizations make a listing and a lasting impact on their world. Um, we also have Jeff McGreenvy. Um, he serves as a first responder and their families, including police, fire, paramedics, emergency medical personnel, and other um, essential agencies. Um, his support services are free, confidential, and provided through professional trauma-informed counselors. Then later on in the show, we'll have Daphne Barak and Bill Genesti and their upcoming book and film release of Trump versus Hollywood. That ought to be an interesting movie and a book, and I would like to get a, get my hands on that. And then we have, at the end of the show, David Ditch. Um, he's um, from the Research Association, or he's an associate of the Heritage Center for the Federal Budget. Uh, as soon as Annie can um, work out the technical difficulties, um, we'll do a dedication to Corporal Christine Peters, Greenbelt Police Department, Maryland. Her end of watch was Thursday, January 14, 2021. Well, once again, as I say, welcome to Southern Sense Radio, Talk Radio, and um, we have on our agenda today a lot of great guests, um, and I hope we can get them on once we get this um, technical issue resolved. Going on in the world today, living under the administration of um, this guy called Joe Biden, I guess we, we, we just love the gas prices as they keep going up and up and up, and the problem at the southern borders keep growing um, by the leaps and bounds. Um, I guess they didn't learn a thing from the last four years of the Trump administration. Not that they were trying to, but, you know, I think all of this is going to come back to bite them in the rear end in the midterm elections. Um, The reason being that a lot of people are waking up and they are fed up. They're fed up with the leadership in the Republican Party, those who are Our um, snowflakes have no backbone. They're tired of the agenda that the left is pushing. They're tired of their freedoms and liberties being diminished by the weak. And they're tired of all of these presidential um, orders, executive orders coming out of the Biden administration that are not grounded in um, established law or policies. You know, they just come up with things and it's more like like dictates, you know. Um, 
You know, it, it doesn't make sense. But people are tired, and like I said, I think come 2022, we're going to see another, another um, um, massive flow to the Republican Party as we oust the Democrats from the House and the Senate. Much like um, we we did back in um, Obama's um, after his first two years in office, after they passed that that crazy um, the bill that taken that was taken over one sixth of our our economy, you know, in the medical field, healthcare, and all that. So, I'm very optimistic about our future as a country. I think we can stop them dead in their tracks <clears throat> if we regain both houses because um, their bills will not go anywhere, and and Biden can't do it all. Even though I suspect in a two-year period Biden will not be president, it'll be Kamala Harris who will be the first female, black female president, as the left would love to, um, to you know, say. But until that time, I think we have to remain faithful and uh, positive you know, about what we, we stand for. Um, we can't let, you know, this get us down to the point where we've given up on um, the system and and our institutions. Um, <clears throat> throughout the history of this country, we, we've had to do battle with the forces of evil that were intent on bringing this um, republic down. And to, you know, we the people's credit, we have risen to the task many times. I'm going way back to the Revolutionary War, through the War 1812 and 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 the Civil War and and on. So I, I'm very hopeful. Um, we did it again when we elected Trump. You know that was that's a saving grace because at that time, had the left had won and we put Hillary in office would be a different country now. We'd be even worse off than we are now. But thankfully, Trump got in and got us to a point where even though the Democrats are in power now, um, they have to really chip away at a lot of good things that this man has done for the country before they get us in a real dire situation that we can't climb out of. But again, if we stay focused on the midterm elections coming up, we will prevail. And um, I don't know if Donald Trump is going to run again um, in 2024. Some people say, you know, they would love to see him run again. Others say no, you know, so I'm trying to figure out who's going to fight for us as hard as he did, you know, who's going to defend the Constitution and, and our, our our rights as, as well as he did. And, um, It'll be a hard act to follow for any Republican seeking the presidency. Um, a lot of people are talking about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And, um, yes, I think he would be a great president, but I don't think he, you know, I'll put it this way, he'll have uh, some some large um, shoes to fill to be, you know, like a Trump, you know, and, and facing down the people. Uh, of course, we won't have the tweets and stuff, but, you know, I think he would do good. But I, I, based on Trump's record, he has a history of, of comebacks, and and we all know he's a fighter. 
So uh, I think we will see in maybe less than maybe a year and a half um, him jump in the race because, you know, these days they start almost like two or three years out from the election declaring, you know, their candidacy for president. So I, like many of you, will have to wait and see. But having said that, I think it's imperative that we get people in Congress who are true conservatives. And even though you try your best to vet these people, you know, it's it's hard because there are people out there who will put on any stripes they feel they need to wear to get into office and assume power. So, you know, we have to get people who have an established record as conservatives and then move from that point on. Because I think once we get rid of most of the rhinos, I think we'd be all right as a party. I think I hear Annie. Is that you, Annie? Testing. One, two, three. Is that you, Annie? I heard the mic. Can you hear me now? Loud and clear. If I can hear you, they can hear you. Yep. Well, I have to call in on my landline. This is really screwed up. Absolutely. I I called in five different times using Skype, and now I'm using the landline. And this is doubly messed. Well, we must be a target. (laughs) No doubt. We're a threat to the establishment. All the hard work I put into this show to get the graphics up and everything to go up on YouTube and Facebook and everything else just went completely out the window. Blog Talk Radio, I'm getting off your ass real soon. And I'm really pissed at this point. That's two of us. Unbelievable. Absolutely, absolutely unfriggin' believable. I am so furious at this point. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, situation normal all effed up. Oh. Oh, well. Well, (laughs) you were winging it fine. I just, you know, this is really crazy because I made sure I got up early today, made sure everything was turned on the way it's supposed to be. I checked my mixer board, making sure I had the sound coming through it. And you know what? It's all to naught. All to naught. Anyway. That's it. Hello. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Anyway. Could you hear me? Because we couldn't hear you, but could you hear me? I could hear you perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. So I don't know why you... weird. We we can use the phone lines to call into the show, but using Skype is absolutely off the chart. It's not not even permissible. So, you know, it's not... Anything we're doing wrong, because I double-checked all my sound settings, and everything is exactly the way it should be. But, oh well, it's another effed-up Friday <laughs> on Southern Oh, Saturday. yeah. <laughs> and it's not even Friday the 13th. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. No, it's not. But as you were saying, we've got ourselves a bang-up show going on, so we're just going to have to do this old-school um, I'm not even going to try to record this. Uh, I'm just, I'm going to stop the, the, the video recording because there's no sense. There's no sound. 
There's nothing coming through it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just closing this out now. That's what I'm doing at this moment. So I apologize to anyone that is trying to listen on Facebook or over on um, YouTube. It is not happening. Anyway, um, anyway, as you were saying, we got ourselves a bang-up show. So we're just going to wheel it as best as we can. Uh, and we'll make it work anyway, Curtis. So thank you. Thank you for pitching in. And thank God you were there. <laughs> so. Yeah, I didn't know if anyone could hear me or not. So I pretty much, you know, was just waiting to hear from you because I figured <laughs> if they can't hear you, they can't hear me. But um, yeah. I don't know if we're going to do this dedication or not. But um, Oh, yeah, we, it's, it's, it's kind of short. So, yeah, let's, let's go forward with the dedication. Um, the dedication today is going out to Corporal Christine Peters of the Greenbelt Police Department of Maryland. Her end of watch was Thursday, January 14th of 2021. And this is going to go on, and I have a funny feeling my computer is making weird noises, and that could be part of my problem. I'm hoping my computer doesn't crash. Anyway, uh, this is from the Greenbelt News Review. And it reads, the city of Greenbelt Police Department announced the death of Corporal Christine Peters. Corporal Peters died on Thursday, January 14th this year from injuries she sustained while on duty on Saturday, January 2nd. Corporal Peters was injured while investigating a vehicle crash in Edmonston Road near Sunnyside Avenue. While Corporal Peters was on foot, she was struck by a passing vehicle. The accident remains under investigation by the U.S. Park Police. Corporal Peters began her career in law enforcement with the University of Maryland Police Department prior to joining the Greenbelt Police Department in 1998. During her 22 years of service, she was recognized for her outstanding work and contributions to the community. The Greenbelt Police Department expresses its deepest deepest sympathies to Corporal Peters' family and friends on their loss and mourns the loss of a friend and colleague. It goes on further with MSN.com as it reads, Officer Christine Peters, 49, leaves behind a husband, teenage children, and heartbroken officers at the Greenbelt Police Department. She was a fierce friend and just wonderful, said George Matthews, a department spokesman. Chris was larger than life. Matthews cited their time together running sessions of a Citizens Police Academy designed to give residents a sense of what police work is like in Greenbelt. Peters insisted on making instructions as hands-on as possible, at one point staging a detailed crime scene at the parking lot outside the police station. Citizens were asked to collect evidence, take photographs, and process fingerprints. She also brought in a hostage negotiator for demonstrations. They loved her down-to-earth personality, Matthew said, of the Academy participants. Peters joined the Greenbelt Force in 1998. She held a variety of duties, including working as an evidence technician and most recently working as a patrol officer. She also volunteered for the Maryland Special Olympics. The night of January 2nd, she responded to a radio call about a traffic accident along Edmonston Road. She arrived and found a vehicle that had left the road. 
The spot was just outside the Greenbelt city limits, but Peters stayed to help. A call went out, and she was nearby, and she responded to it, Matthews said. While on foot at the scene, Peters was struck by a passing vehicle. That driver stayed at the scene, officials said. The case was being investigated by the U.S. Park Police with the assistance of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Maryland. Peters suffered traumatic head injuries and was taken by helicopter to MedStar Washington Hospital Center. She remained in critical condition until she finally passed. And finally, from Fox 5, D.C., Blue and Greenbelt are mourning the loss of a fallen officer, Corporal Christine Peters. Officials in Greenbelt held a procession for Peters as her body traveled for the medical examiner's office to the funeral home. Flags flew at half-staff. The procession was followed by a vigil at the police department. Chief Rick Bowers told Fox 5 the loss of Corporal Peters is one that can't be replaced. She had a very unique personality and brought a lot of laughter to the organization. She was so beloved. Officers young and old loved Corporal Peters, so she will be deeply missed. At the center of the vigil was Peters' patrol car. It was decorated with all the things she loved, including the Florida State Seminoles, Baltimore Orioles, and Star Wars. She was a big Star Wars fan, and you could tell by the baby Yoda. She had a unique and quirky personality that everyone loved, former police chief Jim Craze said. She was happy, she was fun to be around, and she was quite a sports fan. The vigil was organized by members of the community who knew Peters through her dedication to running the Citizens Police Academy. At exactly 1.08 p.m., which was Peters' badge number, there was a moment of silence. Peters was assisting National Park Police with a traffic accident when she was hit by a car. The call came in before her shift, and she responded while she was on her way to work. She volunteered to take that call. She was the nearest, and to her nature, she responded to the call herself. That response resulted in the end of her life, Grace said. Today's show is dedicated to Corporal Christine Peters, badge number 108. Corporal Peters, you are now end of tour. Please stand down. We'll take over from here. We dedicate this show to not only Corporal Peters, but to all of the brave men and women that serve as our first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate to them, to the men and women who serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our future. And we dedicate this song by Dave Bray, Last Call. May God bless each and every one.
Dave Bray, last call, and you're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, oh, half a dozen other places. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and I didn't get a chance to do my opening, so of course I am the hostess with the least most is the radio chickadee, Annie, along with my oh-so-patient and wonderful co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, we're finally getting our act together despite all the technical difficulties we had this morning or this afternoon or whatever time of day it is. I'm even looking at the clock in my office. I realize I haven't even done daylight savings on the clock. Boy, am I really behind. Anyway, welcome back to the show, Dr. Bob Record. Uh, He is the founder and chairman of the Total Life Impact Ministries. Good afternoon and welcome back, Bob. How are you today? Oh, hi, Annie. Good to be with both of you, and thank you for the privilege and the honor, and hope you're both well today as well. Oh, man. Thank you. I swear I can do an easily a half-hour sitcom a week about what goes on in my life. (laughs) (laughs) From trying to host a show that won't let me host to having dueling walkers in the household to wondering why there's a hard-boiled egg in the middle of my living room floor. Bob, I'm telling you, I can actually do a sitcom. (laughs) (laughs) But it's the challenges of life that either make us or break us, and you're obviously let them make you. So that's great. (laughs) It's making me crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, congratulations. You've got a new book out, as I understand, called Ending the Cycle of Father Wounds. And, you know, um, there is such an attack on family, especially Mm -hmm. on fathers in the family. Uh, You kind of like, actually, I I have to put it this way. my state senator was the guest at our Tea Party meeting this week, and he turns around and he put it quite succinctly that something is occurring in our society today that we've never really seen. There's always been a liberal movement that is always trying to mold society in their ideals, but through right. the millennia, we have learned, we have a, a common, almost like a DNA in our in humanity that says certain things work and certain things don't work, such as having a family unit, a mother and a father to raise a child together uh, monogamously. Uh, Certain things work that has been proven throughout the millennia that makes us better people, better children of God. And yet in today's society, we're trying to, we're looking at this and seeing it all being torn asunder. And it's interesting that with the challenges that we've had in the last year with COVID and all the unrest in many of our major cities, it's really ironic that a lady by the name of Mary Eberstadt, Annie and Curtis, who's a senior fellow at uh, the Faith and Reason Institute, where they try to put in education and learning hand-in-hand with faith, they did a major uh, study on the uprisings in the Portland, Seattle's, Chicago's, Detroit's, et cetera. And they found that there had been 570 incidents of violence. That was worse than all the stuff that happened back in the civil rights demonstration days or in uh, the stuff that happened in L.A. a number of years ago. And they dug down below the surface, and here's what they found. Were there race issues involved? Sure. 
Were there tensions involved from socioeconomic areas? Sure. But one of the key issues they found is a threefold crisis, the issue of the absence of fathers, be they physical absence or even emotional absence, which directly impacted a difficulty in getting a hold of a heavenly father that cared because the earthly one sure didn't seem to be engaged or present, which led to the third impact, which is what they called a breakdown in what sociologists call patria, which means the natural, and this is what you were getting at so beautifully, Annie, the natural intended order of things. Those three, disengaged, absent fathers, hard to grasp a heavenly father that loves and cares and wants a personal relationship, and a natural breakdown of the intended habitat, meaning the home, the monogamous family, mom and dad raising kids, and they found that was the primary driver of all the unrest. Unbelievable insight. You know, it's an amazing thing that we, when we look at the statistics uh, of kids that don't have two, two parents, jointly working together to raise that child. If they don't have two parents there, um, the high increase of school dropout, drug abuse, uh, domestic violence, uh, alcoholism, and joblessness, you know, all these things stemming from the fact that what through the millennia has proven to work to create a healthy family, and a healthy society is being torn completely asunder. Right. It was interesting. In uh, the last 15 years, been to over 300,000 men. And in the process, I would often talk about something that related to dad-son relationships. And it became glaringly obvious that there were great wounds that were being carried by guys in their late teens, uh, young adulthood, middle adulthood, and senior adulthood. And I began to ask a question, Curtis and Annie. Here was the question. How many of you, whether the crowd was 100 or 7, 8, 10,000, how many of you grew up with a dad, a stepdad, or a father figure in your life who regularly told you they loved you unconditionally, who told you they were proud of you, not for how you performed, but for who you were. And they worked hard to be present at events that were important to you and not just important to them. Here was the staggering thing. Over thousands and thousands of men, I found that it was never over 25 to 30% who could indicate that's what I grew up with, which meant there were 70, 75%, maybe, maybe as low as 65% of men who said, no, I didn't grow there, and I'm still carrying struggles because of that. So that's why I started writing the book. As my wife started talking to friends and telling them what I was writing and how to end that cycle because I was finding it was multi-generational. women started saying, wait a minute, hold it, time out. It's not just males, guys, sons who have this struggle, there are a lot of us who had a dad, a stepdad, or a father figure that didn't do that with us either, and we're struggling with that. So they really encouraged that I go back, 
redo the book to include both sons and daughters, men and women, and that's what I did. And it has been amazing. When I speak on this, I inevitably have people coming up to me just broken, sobbing in tears about stuff that they're still dealing with from when they grew up. Yeah, I was very, very blessed. I had a father that was very much involved in our family. Actually, active, wonderful. I mean, he passed away just about seven years ago, this coming October. And my mother also equally um, active. Matter of fact, my mom's living with me now. (laughs) Um, Oh, great. You want an Italian mom? You can have her. I understand. Okay. Like I said, I, I, I literally have dueling walkers in my house. I have to direct traffic. It's like, wait a minute, my husband's coming down the mom, mom, wait a minute, wait a minute. One goes through the because well, you can't both. Have you thought about <laughs> but it? But anyway, stop sign? Yeah, traffic light. But, you know, it, there is a real importance of a father for both sons and daughters. And um, my dad would take, knowing what my interests were, and he would go out of his way to find things that he knew that would interest me. Um, mm. He would do that with all of us. And he would treat each and every one of us equally, knowing that, you know, my younger brother has the talents with uh, things that are mechanical, electronic, um, as well as, you know, around the house, do it and fix it. Um, mm. My older brother was more for music and literature. You know, me, I was I was really round and about. Uh, he had me rotating the tires and changing the oil before he taught me to drive because he knew, seriously, you do that on a nine-passenger station wagon in the 1970s, I had a face full of oil. So, yeah. So, you know, he taught me so many things that um, I had a friend of mine helping me do some errands around and some t- tasks around the house. And I was tearing down a trellis that was along my front. So he went into his truck to go and get his tools. By the time he had his tools out, I already had it down. I had the drill in my hand, the screws already out, down on the ground. Because my father knew the, the talents that each and every one of us had. And he was able to focus on those talents and nurture them and help them grow without two parents looking to see the individuality in each child and help to nurture it how will that child find its full potential without a parent figure right that that is very true and the key to it even with two parents there is that when the parents are home that they are engaged emotionally it's really uh Interesting, as I was preparing to write this book, I did a study, and I had many, many people respond to me by literally writing out, if you feel like you've had a father wound, were the reasons, the causes that you feel like you carry that wound? And a number of those, Annie and Curtis, uh, came from homes where there were two parents, but there were a whole bunch and raft of them who didn't. But uh, those who came, even from two-parent homes, when I asked them specifically, what were the main reasons you feel like you carry wounds, especially in your relationship with a dad, a stepdad, or that father figure, here were the top three. 
that the, when they were home, that is the dad, the stepdad, father, they weren't engaged. Number two, they didn't take the opportunity to express love and pride in the child. And number three was when there was a major event in the life of the child, a dance, a game, and sports, uh, some kind of academic competition or uh, some special event at school, the dad often wasn't there and really didn't try to get there. It's interesting. So even when the parents are present physically, that additional position of being emotionally engaged is oh so essential. Well, I'm going to throw a little monkey wrench at you and ask, because I have not had the pleasure of reading your book, so, of course, now you're going to have to send it to me. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> you like that one, the way I slipped that in? And the um, Curtis. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll include Curtis. That's okay, Curtis. You don't mind, do you? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to throw a little bit of a curve, because I'm going to ask if you did include this. In today's day and age of the electronic social media, um, how much is that disengagement between parent and child amplified? Because you, you go to a restaurant, if they're open today, and you yep. look at a family sitting down to eat, and everyone's got their face in their smart device. There's no cross-conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did not directly include it in the book, but it did come up in the uh, process of writing and studying it. Uh, when that happens and, and the social media the issues of being on the Internet, uh, just surfing the web, there's a lot of dads who sit and just surf the web, web, but there are also kids who are surfing the web. When that happens, it breaks down the engagement, uh, the communication levels, and it's as though in many ways, maybe not totally, but in many ways, like that connection between father and child isn't there, regardless of who's doing the surfing or the glued to social media or something that's electronic. Just as much a dad who sits there and watches TV and watches sports and son comes up and says, or, da or, or daughter, daddy, can you, would you, will you? And the answer is either nothing or I'm busy right now. That really causes conflict in the child. You're busy, and I want to spend time with you, and you're, you're watching TV. They may not say it, but they're struggling with it. Bob. Yeah. Bob. Yeah. When I look at the Portland riots and some of the others that broke out across the nation, right. I, I see a couple of things. I, I see a lack of morality, Christian values, and I see a school system that is um, propagandizing our children with um, themes like global, you know, world, world yeah. new order, the new world right. order, and so, social justice. And that right. the latter is what bothers me the most because they're being taught that they're entitled to things. And exactly. when they break break windows and rob stores and and all this during their their riots, they're thinking they they deserve this. It's owed to them. Yeah. And I see that as a problem. Uh, what are I your thoughts on that? 
I couldn't agree with you more, Curtis. Our our education system is significantly broken. And now, uh, if a child is struggling with uh, sexual identity, teachers are often being encouraged. Every school system is under the guidance of that superintendent and school board, et cetera. But in many places across the country, being highly recommended or uh, told, don't tell the parent, this is the child's choice. And the child may be in second or third or fourth grade, and wait a minute, they've got a choice to determine their identity? So sexually, I mean, so yeah, I couldn't agree, Curtis, and the stuff that's being uh, taught, uh, the breakdown of the mores and the principles that have made this country great and strong and firm are shocking and frightening to me and I'm sure to a lot of parents and grandparents as they're watching what's happening. And it, though it's been in process for a long while, it's been quietly often sort of happening to the exclusion of many people's sight and awareness. Now it is front and center. There is no apology, and the pace is picking up rapidly. Yeah. A matter of fact, I, my state I live in, in South Carolina, we uh-huh. just recently passed the fetal heart rate bill. Uh, and yes. McMaster's, I believe, has signed it. We also now have a bill that's sitting at the legislature going up through to the Senate um, that was uh, co-sponsored by my state senator um, for protecting parents' rights. Basically, right. it's saying that it, it not only does it protect the parents' rights, but it says that Biological girls can compete in sports with other biological girls. If you're a biological boy, you have the opportunity to go into a sport that is biological boy. There is, it is just a simple scientific fact that boys have different strengths than girls. If you put a girl next to a boy and do a 50-meter dash, the boy is going to win. 99.9% of the time. You may have that one freak time that a girl may be faster than a boy because maybe he's about 40 pounds overweight. But still, yeah. in order to protect the health, the child, you have to turn around and set rules. You have to have guidelines. Right. And it's just a simple fact. So we're having here in South Carolina that, hey, listen, parents have a right to know what is going on with that child. You cannot be a school official and have that child say, oh, I I have gender identity dysphoria, whatever you want to call it, and you're only six years old, and you don't tell the parent, and you allow that child to go to a doctor without the parent knowing and being given hormones without the parent knowing. So something is wrong here. When you can turn around and allow a child to dictate to you rather than you guiding and teaching the child right from wrong. No, the child knows better than the parent. Something's upside down here. Yeah, it really is, Annie. And this is why, back to your point and Curtis's point, it's so important for parents to be engaged and aware of what's happening out there, of what's going on, what their kids are facing. Uh, All of us know 
that in public libraries across the country, they now have drag queen reading days where drag queens are brought into a public library and reading kids children's books. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that this is just another step in trying to break down not only the mores and principles, but the morals of this nation. And just go back and look at what happened to other great nations and rulings across the centuries, and you'll see that he was breaking down the solidity of the home, breaking down the issues of male leadership, questioning the importance of the family to the point that sexual mores were thrown out. Any relationship to a god was continually castigated, and then it led to a actual directed movement of pedophilia. And I fear, as I'm watching all the trends, I am absolutely frightened to death for my nation of where it's moving in for parents and what they've got to make themselves aware of. Look at the Equality Act that has already been dealt with in the House of Representatives in Washington will be going to the Senate and is being pushed hard to be passed in short order. And if it is, some of the things that you were referring to already, Annie, about gender-based sports where girls compete with girls, boys compete with boys, all that will be blown asunder. And there will not be anywhere in America where you can't, if you feel like today, I feel like a girl even though I'm a boy and I want to go into that girl's bathroom or locker room, I can do that. And that's where it is headed. It is frightening to read the Equality Act and what it is going to to the culture of America if it's passed. And it's already passed the House. So America has got to wake up. Parents have got to be alert. And dads, because God's put them in the home to be what your dad was so well, uh, Annie, to be that strong, solidifying rock, that leader, that engaged dad, uh, learning what each of his kids' strengths are and building on those strengths. That's going to be so important for the future. You know, what is is so frightening, especially with what I call the Inequality Act, you know, here's these girls that that have worked really hard to be the best in whatever sport it is that they're in. And they're looking to get a scholarship to go to college. They're looking to possibly even get into professional sports to earn a living, get uh, endorsements. Their future income, their entire future is focused around being the best that they can be in that sport. And all of a sudden having that just ripped out of their hands, like those poor three girls in Connecticut, you know, right. their lives have been upended. What would their lives have been had not these boys decided to steal their futures from them? And that's exactly what it is. It's theft of yeah. their future. Yeah. Yeah, so well said. And uh, I would say uh, two things that have come to my mind as you were so beautifully saying and positioning that. Uh, Curtis, to your question about the uh, unrest in the cities, and you mentioned Portland specifically, what many people don't know is that Portland 
has done very little to promote strong families, et cetera. In fact, they have a huge subculture of homeless kids. They actually call, we refer to wild cats or wild hogs on a farm or a ranch as feral cats, feral hogs. They have a subculture in Portland, Curtis, of feral kids who just run the streets, homeless, don't have mom and dad putting into their life, uh, some by choice, some not by choice, but they pander to these kids. And some of those kids have been involved in some of this incredible unrest. And back to your point, Annie, uh, of the girls that were had this stolen from them, the importance of your dad in your life. I often get asked when I'm dealing with father wounds, what do the kids need out of a dad? And in the book, I address that. And it's not just, well, from this age to this age, they need this, and from this age to this age, they need that. Life isn't that cut and dry. But they do need some very key issues from a dad, and that is they need a dad who is a provider protector. They need to know that dad is going to meet their needs, care for them, and make sure that all those needs are supplied while at the same time they have a security that dad will them from harm and evil and things that are not best for them. They also need a dad who's a nurturer, and you so beautifully describe your dad with you, a boundary maker as well. That means as they grow up, dad needs to be engaged in building boundaries that are there for the safety and health of the child. And as long as they stay in those boundaries, great. But if they do cross those boundaries, learning the point that there are consequences for decisions made of breaking boundaries that have been established. Because if it doesn't happen at home and if dad's not involved, what is going to happen when they get to school and break the boundaries that schools install or get a job and the job has boundaries and they say, well, that doesn't apply to me. So dads have to be dealing with those things, uh, helping implement those things. And the last thing they need in a dad, and this really increases as they get into teen years and older is dad becomes increasingly a coach Whereas earlier, he was a boundary setter and, if need be, enforcer in a loving and caring way that helped him understand that choices have consequences. Protector, provider, and nurture. They need all of that in the dad. And when those are missing, there are consequences, to sort of play on that word again, that are inevitable and predictable in the life of the child as they go into adulthood and beyond. And here's the problem. If they are denied that as they grow up or if they have dads, stepdads, father figures who are not emotionally engaged, verbally abusive, tragically sometimes physically abusive. Uh, I I was with uh, uh, my wife at a Bass Pro Shop the other day. And there was a dad and his son. They were looking at the big, big, incredible aquariums that Bass Pro Shops often have. And the boy was sort of walking up. He was maybe six, seven, on some uh, 
created rocks that made it all look natural. And the dad jerked him down, pulled him up, and said, you stupid kid, who do you think you are? And what in the world are you doing up there on those rocks? I almost came apart because I thought, can you understand the wound you're giving that child? what you're doing and what that is breaking inside of him. So that's so important that dads are much more the model of what you experienced, Annie, than dads the model of what so many others are experiencing in our culture. Well, you know, what I, you said something very important, you know, nurturing the child and then beyond. Because yeah. even – up to the point where my dad finally passed away, um, I still leaned on him. You know, you even though I was an independent, I had been mm-hmm. a business owner, um, I had been married twice now, uh, living, mm-hmm. he was living 850 miles away from me, but still, knowing that I could pick up the phone and talk to him. The same with my mom. Only now I just have to shout down the hallway. <laughs> but, but knowing that they would always be there for me is yes. such an important part of an individual's life, whether you're Absolutely. a boy or a girl, you know, knowing that your parents would always be there for you no matter what stage right. of your life you are in. And it's funny because my mom is a stroke victim, so she's lost half the use of her body. Uh, but mm-hmm. she'll see me struggling with something, and she'll go, can I help you? <laughs> yeah, right, Mom. It's like, how Amazing. is that going to work out? <laughs> but, but what a heart. She'll what always heart. ask me, is there something I can do for you? Like, Mom, what the heck can you do? <laughs> really? Oh, <you're> so great. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, knowing that the parent still loves you unconditionally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're going to lock horns somewhere along the way. It's just sure. natural between a parent and a child. You will lock horns. But, you know, you get over it and you get back on path. But this is right. what we're losing in our society. We have become such a disposable society that you know, marriages can fall apart on just because someone sneezes too loudly. You know, there's no commitment to another human being. And the way we're going, the path we're going down, and the way our schools are teaching our kids is that you and I don't even look at each other anymore as an equal human being. You're just a voice on the other end of the computer, the other end of the phone. You know, you don't mm-hmm. think of that other person as an equal human being anymore, worthy of the same respect and love that you demand. Yep. I I would agree, and I think that uh, in doing that, we need to do everything we can to be as healthy as we can, both as parents, dad or mom, and hopefully as kids. And one of the questions I get a lot is, uh, how do you know if father wounds have affected your life at all, even if people have grown up with two parents at home? One of the things we did in the book is in the third chapter, we did a self-assessment tool. I have a friend who's probably the greatest Christian counselor I've ever known, almost 40,000 hours of helping people through issues that are really tripping up their life. Often, he's found, goes back in some degree to a wound, a break with the dad, and we put together that self-assessment so that in five minutes, 
anybody with just a pen in their hand can see, does this apply to me? We've also tried to make it very, very affordable. In fact, uh, Amazon has worked with us, and it's at a great price right now on Amazon. I mean, a great price uh, to help uh, get, get into the hands of people to uh, if they've had some disappointment, some hurt, some struggle, some baggage with a past father, stepdad, father figure. Uh, we want it to be a tool in their hands on how do you deal with it and get beyond it so that it doesn't trip you up or the generation that you'll help create in your kids or your grandkids. Well, Bob, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I wish we had some more time, but our next guest is up in the queue. People can find you at uh, Total Life Impact Ministries, which is actually TLIministries.com, and your book is Ending the Cycle of Father Wounds that they can find up on Amazon. Bob, God bless you for the hard work you do, sir. And you and Curtis, what a joy to be with you. God's blessing to you. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bob Record. Bob Record. Check him out, Total Life Impact Ministries. And we got our next victim up on the show. And I have to apologize because we are having some major technical difficulties here. Uh, so we're doing this kind of old school. So welcome aboard, Jeff McGreevy. And he is with 911 at Ease International. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you today? Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I'm fired up. I get to talk to my people. oh man you know um our first responders especially law enforcement are under such horrendous horrendous attacks i mean i hit the streets back uh before giuliani was mayor in new york and that was a mess back then i never thought i would see it degrade to the condition it's in and the stress these men and women are going through is unbelievable. It's really true. It's really 2020 and even, you know, getting into this first quarter of 2021, I think has really been the most challenging time uh, for law enforcement in a long time. And, and I came into the business right after Rodney King. So, you know, I was, was, a, was a police officer in Southern California. And so that I came in uh, probably six months after the Rodney King incident happened. And, uh, you know, we, we got through that. And then we have these things that happen where one person's action affects an entire profession, really. Now, that's the shameful part, because less than 1% of any law enforcement, on average, has the bad apple. And that one right. apple can make it horrific for the 99% that are out there doing a mm-hmm. good, hard job. I mean, I... I was there for the Crown Height riots uh, up in uh, on Eastern Parkway. So mm-hmm. I, I know what it's like to stand the front line and then being assaulted, being called every name in the book, having things thrown at you. Um, but I have never seen the all-out assault on officers or just even yeah. the thought of law mm-hmm. being enforced is now just taboo. Right. Right. And it's tough. It's not only tough on the, on the officers that are out there on the front line, but imagine what their families are going through. I mean, they're really worried about the person that they love the most getting hurt uh, just because of the color of the uniform that they're wearing. 
Well, not only that, you compound that where if you do have someone that is starting to have family difficulties, you know, a lot of times these men and women go home and they want to just unload, just tell someone what happened today just so they can have someone to talk with. And the other family mm-hmm. member doesn't understand what they had just gone through, and they really don't care and don't want to listen. So it, it then compounds the stress on that individual, mm-hmm. which leads to alcoholism, to divorce, uh, yeah. to family disputes. It, the stress can carry from the street back into their individual homes unintentionally. I think a lot, you know, some of the things that I experienced was I actually didn't want to talk about it, but I want them to think that you just, you know, everything's fine and that you know, the city uh, problems and the challenges and that I was seeing as I didn't know them to understand. You're breaking up, that. Jeff. Jeff, you're breaking up badly. Oh, sorry. Okay. Is, or, how's that? Are we better? Oh, a lot better, a lot better. Okay. okay. I'm and sorry about that. Saying, I'm going to – yeah, and I apologize for that. I just switched uh, earbuds off, and hope, hopefully this is clear. But what I was saying is that um, many times I didn't want to take that stuff home and talk to my family about it. It was um, it was something that I wanted to leave at work and uh, because I just wanted them to live in utopia. I wanted them to think everything's fine and the world is a happy place and, you know, not – not bring that stuff home to them. Um, and that, you know, can build up over time. Like you have a lot of challenges yeah, in the it, family. It, it can. It really can. Because um, I know a lot of times I would come home, and at that point I was married to Maureen. So you would think a Maureen <laughs> would want to listen to what you had to say. But as I said, I liked having superior firepower. Um, but I can remember many times I'd come home, especially going around the clock, and all you want to do is just drop and just zone out, and mm-hmm. a lot of times you can't, and that adds to the stress. So if you were suffering from a start of PTSD, boy, if that doesn't push you off the edge, I don't know what does. But back <laughs> when my day, they didn't have organizations like yours. Now tell us mm-hmm. about the 911 at Ease International and what it is you're doing to help men and women yeah. out there. Yeah, well, thank you. And I'd like to just lead up to that and and how I got affiliated with them. So I was a police officer for 29 years, and I was involved in our peer support program and our trauma support team for a long time. And um, and we and our and our doctor out in California, um, they were uh, his wife was from Brooklyn, and and uh, and he was a a very proud New York Yankee fan out there representing on the West Coast. Um, But we had a fantastic police psychologist and uh, who I got a lot of training from Dr. Larry Blum. And, but as my career went on, uh, we found that we didn't have um, a lot of other resources locally for having culturally competent clinicians to help when someone had um, marriage problems or they were experiencing PTSD, depression, suicidal thoughts, or just stuff when they needed to help the family. And about two years ago, I found out a program called the, the 911 at ease international foundation. And, um, I started referring, um, police officers to it because it was a free confidential service that the first responder could use. And it was completely outside the department. And I think that's a big thing is that what we do is, is the confidentiality and the trust that we build up with our first responders, because they don't have to worry about 
you know, if they tell the truth about what they're struggling with, they catch a fitness for duty or people at work finding out because there's, there's still a bit of stigma with coming forward to getting that help. But uh, I started referring people to the, the at ease program, which, which started in Santa Barbara, California, which is over on the coast uh, north of Los Angeles. And as I was nearing my retirement, uh, they wanted to um, uh, expand the program, and I became the, the program manager for Ventura County, and then I stood up a program in Kern County, which is uh, where Bakersfield is. And um, now we've got chapters in Idaho, uh, Minneapolis, the Navajo Nation out in, in New Mexico. Um, after our interview here today, I'm, I'm meeting with uh, executives from the Phoenix Police Department in Arizona to talk about trying to bring the program there. Um, we've, so we're doing a lot of good for, for cops and firefighters that need some help. And we just want to keep them strong. Um, depression and PTSD, these are all treatable things. Uh, that they don't need to suffer with it like I did. You know, I, I experienced my own PTSD in, back in 2015, and, and um, I got myself the help that I needed. But that's what we want people to understand is that there's, there's resources out there for you, a safe way to do it, and our program in the areas that we're, that we're in doesn't cost the first responder anything. Our foundation pays for all of the, the clinical services, so it's a pretty amazing program. It, it really does sound like it. Like I said, I wish I had something back in my mm-hmm. day, but what what people don't understand is like, well, what's the problem with going to the department shrink? Well, first off, mm-hmm. as you said, it's the stigmatism between your fellow officers, but it also goes into your file folder. So mm-hmm. if you wanted to go into an elite unit or if you were going to go for a promotion or a transfer, uh, that's a mark against you, and it could be a career mm-hmm. ender. You will be stuck yeah. in whatever position you're in for the rest of your career. And plus, on top of which, you'll have the stigmatism of being put on what we call mm-hmm. the rubber gun squad. Your gun mm-hmm. is pulled to me. You're now a cop without a gun because <clears throat> they don't want any tools that you could commit suicide in your hands. So, you know, okay. there is – so you may be still able to function perfectly well on the street. Mm-hmm. But now you've got that black mark against you that doesn't help with your frame of mind, honestly. Right. Well, there's a bunch of cops that are out there functioning just fine on the street, but they've got a problem that they know they should come forward and ask for help, and they're afraid to because of the things that you just said, those barriers, a barrier of will this affect my career? Could I lose my job? Will people look down at me because, um, you know, I said that I was having a problem with stress? And, you know, what we truly believe is that uh, every cop or firefighter that does this job for any length of time is going to have PTSD multiple times throughout their career, and it's just the way that you handle it because they get exposed to things that normal people don't get exposed to. Uh, there's all these little micro traumas that happen throughout their career, and I really think that believe that you know cumulative trauma is really the the the, the big factor in our business. It's not just the one thing that happens. It's there's some spikes, there's some critical incidents that happen, maybe a shooting or some gnarly scene or a suicide or a death of a child. Those things are, are major incidents. But then there's all of the little things that happen along the way and the violence that they see and being mistreated by the community or, or you know, the fear of having to fight with people, you know, to, to get them into handcuffs. So it's constantly being under stress for a long time. And that builds, develops that hypervigilance that leads into this cumulative trauma that, um, you know, if, and we want to give them a, a place where they can unload that stuff in a safe way 
and not be worried about affecting your job. Because, you know, as I stated earlier, I, I, in 2015, you know, I was that guy. And I, you know, came forward and, um, and got some help. And I worked for seven more years, uh, almost after, you know, fully functioning, never missed a day of work. But what I was having was just was really normal. It's what first responders deal with. And, and command staffs and executives need to understand that their people get traumatized and that they should be proud of them for coming forward. And they should open their arms and say, what can we do to help you, brother? What can we do to help you, sister? We want to put you in a place where, and I don't mean to play, I want, we want to put you in a position where you can be successful and, and get whatever it is that you need so that you can move forward and continue to serve whatever city it is that you, you work in because the, the community needs, needs those heroes. And it's a shame yeah. that we lose some of the people that we lose. Yes. Yeah, this sounds like something that um, military people, especially men, go through a lot. When they yeah, have for sure. emotional problems or whatnot, they're afraid to come mm-hmm. forward because it may impact their careers, you know. And, yeah. and um, so, not only that, the, the macho type, you know, environment that we <laughs> we live in in the military. I'm, I'm a veteran now, but you know, it, it it just they teach you to, you know, suffer through the difficulties, you know, mm-hmm. just to yeah. suck it up. So a lot yeah, of guys it is. You know, commit suicide and stuff because they could never come forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or something. Someone. It got to a part where a point where they felt there was no return, and the, and that person that ends their life is just a, a, a horror story for their family, for them, for everybody to have yeah. to go through the people they leave behind. And it's sad that people think uh, that someone gets to the point in their life where they think that's the best option is to do that, and then you yeah. know the. The, the trail of devastation. I've, I've known five of my colleagues throughout my career that ended their life. And it was, uh, it, it was devastating for, for the department when, the, when stuff like that happens. And you look back and you go, did we fail that person? Like, is there something somebody could have done to help them? You know, and it's not true for everybody, but then, you know, there's always some that, man, if they, you, you always see the warning signs after the fact, you, you know what I was, I did yeah. see, you know, these signs and, and thanks for your service, sir. I, I was in the Marine Corps and I'm, I'm a veteran also. And, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, yeah, I joined the military when I was 17. I didn't. I was a West Coast Marine. I was uh, down in oh. uh, San Diego. What do you call it? Hollywood Marine? That was me. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, in, I was in, I joined, yeah, I joined when I was 17 and then I was in the police academy at 21. Oh. So well, my I, whole, my whole what. adult life. Well, I'll tell you what, though. I live right smack in the heart of the Tri-Command. I've got Paris Island in one direction. I've got the Marine Corps Air Station Buford in the other direction and the Naval Hospital, mm-hmm. and I'm like dead center. <laughs> so, I love it. I love it. And I didn't, I didn't I tell you guys. I got Marines up the I, wazoo I, here. Yeah, we're there. And then uh, I grew up on the East Coast, so I, I, I lived in Long Island in Suffolk County until I was in fourth grade, and then my family moved out to the to the West Coast. So all my family... Uh, are all uh, New Yorkers. My grandparents were all from Brooklyn. And, uh, so we, we've got wow. that common East Coast bond there. Oh, wow. Suffolk County. you got to tell me which town because I came out of Brentwood. I, I lived in Melville. Uh-huh. Okay. In Huntington right. Station got... area. But no. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Because uh, we moved from Brentwood over into Westbury. And I graduated mm-hmm. out of Westbury. And then became the That's co- great. years and years and years later, after I owned mm-hmm. a business and managed a few, I then threw everything up in the air, said goodbye corporate world, and became a New York City cop. 
I love it. Brooklyn. I love it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Bushwick, Williamsburg. <laughs> yeah, you got your wish, didn't you? We're going to put you in, the, in one of the toughest neighborhoods in the country. <laughs> well, you know what the saying is, is that whenever there was a riot or something big going on, the first units that get called up were out of the Bronx and Brooklyn. And then Queens mm. and Staten Island and Manhattan were always behind <laughs> us. <laughs> we yeah, had the yeah, first yeah. line. <laughs> yeah, I bet you could you could tell stories for days and days and days from those days, right? <laughs> well, the true story is, and I still have my memo book, so if anyone wants to question me, I can prove it. My very first foot post was in front of the very building that Serpico was shot in. Oh my and God. that was wow. my command. That was my command, mm-hmm. and it was still a burned-out shell at that time. And I doubt if it's anything different. Oh, man. But, you know, <laughs> people, if, if someone knows a first responder that may be struggling, um, yeah. all they have to do is tell them to get a hold of you guys. And it doesn't matter where within the United States, because you can also do peer-to-peer uh, yeah. counseling and connections. So, you know, it still remains confidential, and they can get the help they need, even though they're not in these yeah. cities that you have your centers. Right. And I'll tell you, in the, the places where we actually have clinicians that we're working with are so on the West Coast in Ventura, Santa Barbara, Kern, and San Luis Obispo counties. We're starting a chapter up in uh, San Francisco. And as I said, we're in the uh, Boise and Sun Valley area in Idaho. Uh, Navajo Nation in New Mexico, and then we have a chapter for all of Minnesota. So it's it's uh, in the Minneapolis area, but we're we're helping uh, folks in in Minneapolis. But then we, if you need help, so we'll, if someone uh, contacted us, we would absolutely uh, do our best to refer them to someone. Or if you just needed a peer to talk to, we could connect them with either a peer in their area or or one of us. Um, you know, could talk somebody through, and and we're not a hotline, so I don't want to you know, think it's a, it's it's not that it's a help hotline, but we're a referral service, meaning that we, we just want to connect people with a resource so that they can um, get that help, or just if there's something that they wanted to talk about, we could connect them with a peer, somebody that understands what they're going through. But if someone does need a hotline, do you have access to information to give them? Sure. Yeah, we could refer them to you know, a suicide hotline or, or find a local hotline in their area. If they're a veteran, there's a lot of veterans crisis hotlines that are available. Mm. You know, I I mentioned to someone once, and they said they were going to look into doing this, but having a central collection of all the different sites like yours, like uh, Behind mm-hmm. the Shield, you know, all these other assets that are out there to help the frontline first responders as well as veterans and active military. I would love to see someone build that database where if someone really needs help, they can they can find it all in a one spot. Did I lose anyone? Nope, I'm here. You're still here? Uh, there's re- oh, all right. I'm still here. But there's, most, there's a lot of regional assets, and so just uh, it's not too hard to find. Simple mm. Google search, and you'll get lots of information. Now, i got a question, because now with what's going on at the border, uh, are you seeing an influx of border uh, patrol officers, customer officers, you know, seeking out your help now? Because what they're going through is hell on earth. Yeah, they're, a, and, you know, they're another agency that's just under a lot of pressure and under a lot of stress. And we're not personally uh, dealing with that, 
but we're, we're, I'm talking to some folks in Texas um, about starting a chapter and, you know, eventually we'll probably have a chapter in, in a, the Dallas or San Antonio area and be able to support some of the folks in Texas. And like I said, I'm in Phoenix today, going to go meet with Phoenix PD and, and talk to them about how we can be of service for them. And now when you, when cops are out there and they're hearing about being defunded, you know, how do you counsel them? Do you just tell them just to hang tight? Do they? you tell them, well, see if you can get yourself as another agency that is not being assaulted in such a manner? How, how do you turn around and say, oh, look, you know, the citizens out there I'm trying to protect and serve, but every time I turn around, someone's screaming at me, defund the peace, the police. This is a CHAZ zone. This is a no-go zone. You can't come in here and enforce the law. How do you, how do you deal with these, these poor people? Well, what I... What I try and tell people is that remember why you got into this business because, you know, we're going to get through this and then something else. There's going to be some other challenge that you have to face. And, you, and, I, and I really ask people just remember why you wanted to be a cop or why you wanted to be a firefighter. Think about what you went through to get this job. job. There's a lot that they had to do. Sometimes it takes a year and a half to get the job, and then you've got to go through a six-month academy and your probation and all your field training. And just remember why, you know, and it's hard. When you've done the job for a while, you kind of can forget why. <laughs> you might even be asking yourself, what did I get myself into? So just remember that um, you serve everyone, but there's a lot of good – you're dealing with 1% of the people that are here, but the silent majority is actually behind you. And there's great resources out there and people in the community um, – that you have your back. Well, you know, well, now, you and 911 at Ease International, you're not just a bunch of guys that are just former first responders, got together, came up with this, but you actually enlist professional help so that when yeah. you are dealing with someone, it's not like I'm talking to you. You are actually have a professional there to do whatever evaluation is necessary to help in the treatment mm -hmm. of this individual, correct? Yeah, what we want to do is, um, well, what we do is we hire culturally competent clinicians. And what that means is a clinician that has experience helping first responders. Some of them are prior law enforcement or prior firefighters, or they're a family member of a first responder. We have clinicians that, you know, they grew up in the family because their parents were first responders, or we've got people that have a lot of experience. They've been treating first responders for years. So that's the type of clinician that we want to be uh, associated with is someone that's got experience. They also have, to have the heart. We want somebody that's got the heart to help take care of our first responders. But the other thing that we do is we help their families. Our resource is not just for the cop. It's not just for the firefighter. It's for their family. So there, we help wives and husbands, and we also help their children. So we want to have people that uh, specialize in couples therapy and marriage problems, and then also a lot of people are having adolescence problems. They've got, you know, the kids haven't been in school for a long time, so there's a lot of problems that are coming to the surface where they might, their children might need some support. So we want to have a well-balanced team in the region uh, where we're serving because it's it, we we need the first responders family to be solid too because when they're having problems it leads to family problems and it just affects everybody in the household well that's the one thing that everyone you know is concentrating on you know helping the officer but 
what happens to the family unit, especially under the conditions of a mm-hmm. pandemic. And, you know, yeah. here you now have kids are going to school. It's like, what's your daddy do or what's your mommy do? Mm-hmm. Oh, they're a cop. Oh, well, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not talking to you. You're poison. You know, there mm-hmm. is also a burden placed upon that child unduly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's bullying. It's just now you've got these kids that they should be proud of what their mom or dad does for a living, and they feel like they can't talk about it because they're going to get targeted and and maybe get picked on and and that's a tough place and we and we want to we want to help those kids as much as possible and then you know they they will kind of hopefully band together with with some other kids that maybe their parents do the same kind of work and so they've got somebody to you know they're kind of in the same boat together because you know what you got to find a partner to help you get through stuff and I think it's the same with kids you know you got to be around the right friends and have a positive uh, a, you know just a positive people around you and that their families are supportive. It's very challenging right now. Uh, this is definitely very challenging times. I, and I never thought I would live to see a, a situation as what we're in. Because honestly, I don't know if I would, in today's day and age, um, become a cop. Honestly. Mm-hmm. And how many of them are retiring because of the situation that we're in? Oh, yeah. It's that it, Departments are seeing mass retirements. And I retired last year. I was scheduled. I was going to retire anyway. Um, so it wasn't like I didn't leave because of what's going on, but it was just it was it was time. But there are some people that they planned on working longer and they're like, you know, what's the hell with this. And they they're putting their papers in early because in some cities they don't have the support. They don't feel like they're supported. And then you know, the, the departments that are supporting their people with, because it's all about leadership. If you've got the right leadership, if you've got leaders where the, the, the rank and file officer feels like they're supported and that their boss has their back, they're going to stay because, you know, we're a team, we're brothers and sisters, and we're going to, we're going to get through this. But if they don't feel supported, you just go, okay, I'm going to, my time's up. I'm going to move on. And so yeah, these big cities, you got people, trying to go to some place where they don't have to deal with all the, the garbage that, that folks are dealing with in, in these big cities that are rioting all the time. Well, Jeff, you do really great work out there. People can find you at 911 at Ease International, which is 911AEI. I believe that's .org, correct? Dot, oh, yes, yeah, 911aei.org. We've got a great video that talks that, about what we do. And it's got testimonials from officers and firefighters that have used our services. Uh, our phone number is 888-283-2734. And, but go to our website. You can request services through the website or just check out what we do. If you're interested in trying to bring a program like this to your area for, for your first responders, reach out to us on the website, 911aei.org. And um, if anyone wants to connect with, with me, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. It's just my name, Jeff McGreevy. And uh, I really appreciate, you know, you helping us spread the word about what we're doing to take care of these great men and women that, that put it on the line every day for all of us. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. And I definitely will spread the word. And hopefully people will be listening to the show and spread it too. God bless. Thanks so much. God bless. Right. Bye-bye. All right, check Take it out, nine one one at Ease International. And if I can get the computer to behave, oh, man, am I having such a bad day today. Anyway, welcoming back onto the show, my good friend Daphne Barak. Da- good afternoon, Daphne. Don't even ask me how the day's going. 
because you know. Oh, my God. First of all, it's not only Daphne Barak. I'm going to text it, talk 10 minutes, and then my better half, Bill Ganassi, who misses you so much, is going um, to talk to you about the difference between Trump versus Hollywood, our new film, and our upcoming book to be out on April, uh, Trump versus Hollywood, Struggling for One America. But first of all, I call Annie, to all your listeners, my saint woman. You have no idea. <laughs> how multitasking she is and how many challenges she's overcoming successfully in one day (laughs) and night, right? Um, I'm telling you, right now, I told you uh, yesterday that I was looking to up the program and do it where it looks something similar to Newsmax. Well, I go to sign in. I had all the equipment set up. I checked everything to make sure it was working. And guess what? I'm back to old school having to call into my own show because the equipment, I just could not get any sound. My poor co-host, Curtis, will tell you, the first 15 minutes, I could not get into the show. I had everything up on the screen. Oh, it looked good on the screen. Right? And no one could hear me for 15 going on 16 minutes into the show. And I finally said, you know, heck, what? I'm... you know what? You know, you know, it's probably even better because now, you know, the mystery, the curiosity. I said when they canceled the Twitter for Donald Trump, which is horrible, I mean, cancel culture, you know. On the other hand, I was, uh, you know, laughing with a close mutual friend of both Donald and I, uh, which Donald is a friend of mine. I said, maybe it's better because, you know, he was slamming on Twitter. Not that I justify it. Don't misunderstand. It's terrible. But before we were so used to know what he thinks every second of the day, suddenly each time he says even half a sentence, we are so curious. We are very interested. So I think that like you, they couldn't hear you. And now, boom, every word <laughs> worth gold, right? Oh, man. It just You, you never know what's going to happen. And I'm telling you, I, one of these days, Daphne, I am going to sit down and write that book, you know, in life there must be love and laughter. Or why is there a hard-boiled egg in the middle of my living room floor? (laughs) (laughs) No, you have to. You have to. And as I offered you via our private email, I would be happy also to introduce you to the owner of Newsmax, our close friend, Chris Ruddy. I think you'll be an Uh. asset. So now now we, we all know that, right? And, I don't and think he wants his old lady on there. I don't think he wants yes, his he old does. lady yes, on there. Yes, he does. Prince is a very intelligent man. He knows better. Trust me. Right? Oh, uh, right. I really. Now, I, but I want to ask I have, you a question, all right? Um, okay, go ahead. So um, what, what do you think, you know, we are so divided and, you know, uh, with cancel culture and everything. So uh, what do you think is the one, one topic? that everybody in Hollywood, California, per se, television industry, but Hollywood is dictating. Everybody, pro-Trump, hates Trump, uh, left-wing, right-wing, what do you think is the one topic that everybody agrees upon? Mm. Wow. The one topic they all agree on. Making money. Making money. Money, yes, money. Money, but when I was uh, talking moral values, right? Well, well, let me help you. It's one okay. word, actually, two words, but it's hashtag me too. So I want to dish some gossip, right, that we'll both like. So um, as you know, anybody who has been accused in Hollywood and me too, whether uh, Les Moonves, the chairman of CBS, uh, uh, Matt Lauer, uh, uh, Charlie Rose, uh, Kevin Spacey, so many of them, 
boom, they disappeared in a second, like uh, erased, and um, none of them could make a comeback. And trust me, some of them were thinking naively they couldn't know. It's like scarred forever. And usually Hollywood loves comeback, you know, like, for example, when Nezelle got an Oscar for Judy, uh, I mean, Stallone did a big comeback, I got awards, right? I mean, they love the word comeback, but not when it comes to me too. So I have to claim some victory, moral victory that every woman would have, right? So part of the 24 actors and musicians and uh, top uh, listers uh, of Hollywood, which we filmed for Trump versus Hollywood, which will be widely, uh, it's already on Vimeo. You can go to watch it on www4, the number 4, oneamerica.com, www4, the number 4, uh, oneamerica.com. And, you know, the film got amazing uh, reviews and coverage from The Hollywood Reporter, LA Times, uh, Yahoo, uh, Variety, uh, Fox News, you just name it, right? Daily Express. But anyway, it will be out with the book, which Bill will tell you in a few minutes more, Trump versus Hollywood struggling for one America uh, and the April. So uh, one of them was director Brett Ratner. Have you heard about him, Annie? I'm sure you, you heard too, my dear. Uh, he did. He was very successful. He did Rush One with Jackie Chan, Rush Two, uh, mega director, right? And at the at one point when everybody was accused, he was accused of, by six women. Two of them, three of them, are famous actresses that he he sexually harassed them. There was even a rape claim. He denied it, and suddenly the the uh, accusation sort of disappeared. Okay. Uh, so, you know, we decided to cast him as one of the people because I thought it went away. And also I believe that in America, everyone is innocent and being found guilty. Uh, what I didn't know that what we found out after, afterwards that he was bullied them and threatened them. And, and instead of taking responsibility or showing remorse and basically after we filmed with him and after we finished editing the film, suddenly Hollywood Reporter Chris Gardner is asking me, why did you give him a platform? And I wasn't prepared. And I said, well, I thought he he claimed uh, he denied it. I thought uh, anybody's innocent until uh, being proved guilty. And apparently uh, Variety called as well. And apparently what happened is that, boom, a few weeks later, a huge headline in Vanity Fair, uh, LA Times, uh, Hollywood Reporter that basically – one of the, there's a one pending lawsuit that Retner and other people reportedly by a court document paid more than $3.3 million to an actress that they silenced her, and now she's suing to for her freedom of speech. She wants to talk, right? It's going as we speak. So um, we got so much uh, shocked, and we got questioned, rightly so. Why do you give him a... The platform, and he started to try to threaten me like he did with them. So we just decided to spend the money and remove him from the film and and give the platform to the wonderful people who deserved it, like Ted Nugent and Scott Bayo and Kevin Sorbo and Dean Kane and Christy Swanson, and on the other end, uh, uh, Too Short and uh, Eric B and Money B and uh, the Ray Davis, uh, Claudia Jordan. I mean, they're all uh, well achieved people. Uh, so at the end, suddenly, boom, we get a suddenly a big headline, you know, three, four weeks ago, that 
Brett Ratner decided to do a comeback. The first one, the only one who thinks he, who who announced it after me too. After three, four years, he was laying low, and he was doing his big biopic film, uh, Milli Vanilli. You remember them? And basically, um, as he text messaged me, why are you talking about my Me Too? Uh, I wanted people to forget about it and come back with my big film as a big director that everybody will applaud. Really? I mean, just like that, you're coming back? Well, anyway, it didn't work well, and the time up and Me Too slammed it and said it should not come. And it's a small world. He was supposed to be financed and distributed by my close friend, Avi Lerner, who is one of the 24 people in Tom versus Hollywood. Avi has been very famous to be the big producer with Sylvester Stallone for his movies, another friend of ours. And I was shocked. So I called Avi Lerner, who was in Bulgaria filming, and I said, why are you doing it? I mean, time, me too, and everybody slamming you, and you don't need to be part of that. And uh, you have a daughter, and, and how could you do that? And Avi was thinking, and I, sh- I shared with him a couple of the texts that Retner has uh, text messaged me at 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, no remorse, just slamming, accusing everybody, the media, everybody about his own wrongdoing. And the next day, Avi called me from Bulgaria and told me, I listened to you, Daphne. I decided to cancel the film. And boom, an hour later, everybody, headlines, Hollywood Reporter, Yahoo, LA Times, everything, you know, Brett Ratner is dropped, a Me Too one. And I think it's one thing that, Annie, uh, I think we all have a really uh, sympathy for this uh, um, change of this culture that, uh, and it's nothing to do with politics, that, you know, uh, men should just uh, make women uh, so uncomfortable uh, just because they're in a powerful position. And look what's happening right now with Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo in New York. When one goes out, boom, look how many, right? So that's uh, yeah. I just wanted to take credit that you saw all these big headlines that know that he tried to get out of the me to uh, blockage, uh, blacklisting, and he could not because it, uh, they should have to work and, and show remorse and do community work and show they've really changed before the first one would be able to go out. And I'm glad that I played a little bit of a part in it. Now, the cancel culture has actually gotten out of hand, but unfortunately there are men that are in power that that seem to feel that they are above everyone else and they are free to do whatever it is they want to do. And unfortunately, Andrew Cuomo is just exactly one of those individuals. Now, I didn't tell you this, but I did say, talk to my audience last week about this. Um, we had a personal interaction, a member of my family and Andrew Cuomo. Uh, matter of fact, uh, she sent him on his honeymoon to Jamaica. And that was back in 1990 when he was married to Kennedy. And he called oh, her in the middle Kerry. of the night. Na- Kennedy is a very good friend of mine. Of course. Yeah. Uh, she's coming out with a tell-all on him. Um, but he called this individual in the middle of the night to complain about uh, the staff that was at the hotel in Jamaica. And he was used throwing the N-word around left and oh, right, God. complaining. 
So I knew about Andrew Cuomo being an arrogant SOB back in 1990. So what would make me think his stripes would change? That's so the I problem. Would not we have to, we have, yeah, I agree. We, yeah. You know, I mean, they, they got away with so many things uh, just because it was a culture. I mean, uh, and it takes two to tango. Women agreed to it. And I think when it happened that, um, forget about Harvey Weinstein, before when Gretchen Carlson, which was supported by me, went against uh, a Roger Ailes. It was so brave. And, uh, you know, she was slammed. They said she would never work again. She would lose everything. And, you know, Rupert Murdoch started my career. His uh, daughter, Liz Murdoch, has been my partner in many big specials, like Michael Jackson and Liza Minnelli and the Kennedys. And uh, we are very good friends. And uh, I supported her. And, frankly, Rupert's children supported her uh, later on. And, and she won big time. And it took a lot of these pioneers to come and, and change the culture. So uh, I said the, the, the reason I said it, besides taking credit, is basically that there are still few issues, Annie, that right-wing, left-wing, in the middle of all the division and cancel culture, can agree upon. And Me Too is one of them. I'm sure you and I and your co-host and Bill is coming to talk to you as well are going to find at least three, four others, because we are all, first of all, Americans, and we also all children of God, right? So we should find some uh, things. So that's basically why the book, uh, which Bill will tell you the difference between the book and the film, uh, you know, uh, Trump versus Hollywood, struggling for one America, um, is different from the film, and it was written in the last few weeks, uh, because, uh, you know, reflecting on the latest events. So that's the idea. And again, you can watch the film before the book and the film are out on www.fightingforthenumber4oneamerica.com. And Bill, here's my other half, Bill Ganassi. <laughs> All right. Well, I'd let you know that on the description of the show is the link to the film, which I rewatched last night. I saw the original one before the editing, and I like the new one. The ed- with all the edits that you've done, it's very good. Matter of fact, you have the uncanny knack of being able to talk to anyone from any different background, and to get them to talk to you in an open and, and wonderful manner, which is really showcased in this great film, Trump versus Hollywood, the two White Houses. And good afternoon, Bill. Hi, how are you, Annie? Oh, I'm turning my hair grayer every moment. <laughs> well, we live in those times, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, uh, those scary times were in Europe in the 1970s, 80s, when uh, people were not talking to one another and shooting each other. And unfortunately, we are not talking to one another. So that's what the documentary, like you mentioned, the second version on November 4th, uh, when, the, when the counting stopped, you know, the, for the election result, and my father, nine-year-old, he said, why did it stop? Uh, you know, he goes to sleep 10 o'clock. He says, why? You know, I want to know the answer. I said, we have to go to sleep, Father. We went. In the morning, he said, well... What happened? And then at that moment, we said we have to change the documentary. 
because something happened. And what happened is that we put in the beginning uh, the court, you know, note from civil law because we said now there is two White Houses because basically two sides do not agree one another and it became two things. So we put that, uh, we made a little research and we found out that there was two White Houses for four years. So we put it in the beginning of the uh, second version, the latest version of the documentary. And then the book idea, uh, the proposal came from the publisher and uh, we said, hold on a second, we can elaborate on this issue in the book that we didn't elaborate it as much in the documentary because in the documentary we kept it, like you mentioned, all those points on racism, uh, Trump persona, and other aspects of the division in America that 24 stars that Daphne interviewed uh, talked about. So they are opening themselves up for the first time and that much and that many of them on such sensitive topics on both ends of the aisle. The fact that they are talking, that shows the urgency that they need to talk to one another. Everybody yearns talking to another instead of fighting for one another. So we said to the publisher, okay, we can write the book. Uh, what do you want us to make the title of? Let's agree on the title. Uh, we said fighting for one America like our website is, fighting number four, oneamerica.com. Uh, said, well, you can write a book on that, and, uh, you know, that could be titled, and then we can say this has to do about the Trump versus Hollywood, the two White Houses documentary, uh, you know, the genesis of that documentary, this book. So the, the, after that, we agreed with the publisher uh, that we should stop fighting uh, for a one America because when everybody fights for America and then uh, they are uh, separating America further apart. So we said, why don't we choose the word struggling uh, for one America? So that's the name of the book. And uh, of course, it has an, uh, it mentions the Trump versus Hollywood the Two White Houses documentary. And this way we are able to explain in this book, make the argument that uh, civil war took place and atrocities were committed during the civil war. And um, we don't go into why it started, but we said that it is based on, uh, because of emancipation of the you know slaves. So from that perspective, and we are talking about in this Trump versus Hollywood, the two White Houses documentary, one of the three topics is race issues. So uh, there is uh, lots of similarities to the past. And the division is as rigid as before, and no one wants this rigidity. And after the Civil War, America showed unity, and but uh, by then, uh, you know, uh, lots of people had died. Today's number is seven and a half million people died in Civil War America. And uh, so from that perspective, we put that into perspective in the book. And we are just a step shorter of that uh, 
in modern times. Uh, so we have to somehow, uh, we should not fight for one America anymore, uh, but uh, we should just uh, struggle for one America we agreed upon. Does it make sense? Well, (laughs) Well, you know, when I was growing up in school, when they tried to describe what America really was, it used to be described as a melting pot. You know, everyone came in with a little bit something to add to create a wonderful melded culture. So, yeah, you may be calling yourself an Italian-American or African-American or a Native American, but somewhere along the way we all recognize the fact that we are American, and yet we fail to understand what it means to be American. And right now we have Black Lives Matter pushing this 16 and 19 project trying to tell us that we were created and predicated upon the ideal of preserving slavery, yet they completely ignore the actual premise of why we fled our Europe to come to America, to seek and create complete freedom and the ability to be who we choose to be, not to have someone create us into something. And yet we're finding now when we look at what is happening, especially with nasty Pelosi leading Congress, a division, a forced division in order to create a political power. Exactly. There's a, we, we came from Europe. I mean, the Europeans came. I came from the Middle East. The Europeans came from the Europe because of the religious wars. It's just persecution. That was the first freedom that they sought here. That's why they came here, right? All these uh, first uh, pioneers came running away from religious wars. And now, look, it is, uh, I I use the word in the book, we use the word in the book, survival of the fittest. You use the melting pot. And those are the two uh, pillars that this country was built on. Uh, We are going to melt in this pot and this, uh, the fittest one is going to reach out to the top heights like we reached out to moon and we are the only country who went to the moon basically all the other ones you know are trying to go now but uh, we've been there 50 years ago and that shows that uh, the system worked here and everybody benefited from the system and even those who complain today about uh, 200 years, what happened 200 years ago. Well, 200 years ago or 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, lots of atrocities took place because it was that time. Now we live uh, that much, uh, you know, in a different time zone. And uh, like I put it in the book, we put it in the book, uh, what if 7.5 million people could die now in a civil war? At that time, it was 750,000 people died in a civil war. So uh, numbers are there, and then the the concepts of melting pot, concepts of uh, survival of the fittest are non-rhetoric right now. You cannot use them. But why not? That's how this country, that's how we reach prosperity that we have. Okay, maybe we degenerated in the past 20 years, but I wouldn't take any of that blame because I'm not globalist. 
uh, all those globalists came to the power with Clinton, uh, Bush, 43, and Obama, and they, they brought the country down in the 24 years that they ruled. Each one ruled for two, two, uh, two terms. Look, we had a 26% of the global GDP when Clinton came in 92. When he left, Obama left, we had 15% of the GDP of the, uh, of the world. So somebody brought this country down economically, militarily, morally, and these are the three presidents who did it for us during their reign. Each one is responsible in demolishing morality, Clinton, military, Bush, and economy, uh, Obama. And uh, this is what, why we are uh, desperate right now. Less jobs, less prosperity, less this, less that. Uh, instead of blaming something else, you know, race issue or something else, look at what these leaders that we elected. I didn't vote for any of these three presidents. So whoever was these three presidents should take the blame that we are in the mess that we are in. Uh, on the other hand, we as Trump delegates, we did our best. And Trump demonstrated survival of the fittest at his best. He, he was the odd man out in the race, and he won. And we always applauded uh, underdogs like this. He was an underdog until he became the president. And we thought that uh, we are doing our civic duty, Daphne and I. Daphne is a lifelong liberal, you know, but the registered Republican with Trump. I am a long-time conservative Republican. But the, we, we, we didn't go as a politicians. We went as a Americans with a civic duty to fulfill a role. And when we saw Trump, President Trump, uh, come as an underdog and accomplish it. And we said, hey, he did it uh, with a hard work. So we are proud to be with him. But then there's all these rhetoric, all these attacks, all these, well, we are all Americans. That's what we, you know, we, we thought we are Americans. We thought we are supposed to do what we did. Uh, whether it's a melting pot is wrong today or survival of the fittest is wrong today, uh, whoever is trying to inflict on us that they are not the lingos of today, well, the facts are otherwise. That's how we became what we are, and that's how we are living in a beautiful country that it is today, no matter how poor is somebody or how wealthy is somebody. We are all benefiting from the goodness of this country compared to the other countries. But on the other hand, like you said, Pelosi and everybody else that yearn for the globalism idea are not America first. Well, it is their choice. They can choose whatever. But look at the results. Three globalist presidents in power in 24 years. Look what happened 26% to 14%, uh, 15%. We lost 11% of our GDP under their regimes. And the, under the Trump we did not lose anything. We stayed at the 15%. Maybe we even went to 16%, maybe 15 and a half percent. So that, that's a reality. Whichever way you look at it, uh, you know, they can argue all day long. But at the end of the day, pocketbook matters. And pocketbook was good with Trump and was not good, unfortunately, with those globalists. Well, you just said something very, very important. 
where we had oppressive administrations that used the globalist message, making us more dependent upon government rather than being self-sufficient. That is when we lost our GDP, and that's when the ratio of debt increased, less production, uh, less prosperity. Once we took the yoke of government off the neck of free Americans, allowing us our self-will and self-determination, our GDP, GDP started to explode. Unemployment went down to a record low of 3.5% equally for men and women. Unemployment decreased dramatically for minorities, especially the black community, because the yoke of government was taken off our neck, regulations decreased, and we as a free people were allowed to choose our method and modes of prosperity. And now we're coming back under the yoke of government again in such an oppressive manner that I, I weep for this nation. Yes, that's why, look, uh, I emphasize the point of uh, fighting for one America. That's what we, uh, Daphne and I, uh, we have been saying all along. But now we toned it down just to come to the understanding, not to be too much, uh, you know, just to reach out. We say struggling for one America. That's our book, struggling for one America. What? Why are we saying this thing? We are conscious of it, what you are saying. China uh, was globalist, started the path globalism with Germany, with Russia, with the royalists of the UK, that's how I put it, against the big superpower America that we are. Why? Because they wanted to take us down. And in order to take us down, they had to take the exports, you know, they had to take the manufacturing out of us, and that's how unemployment increased here. That's how we lost the GDP 11% during those globalist presidents. They imposed on us, I call it. We didn't elect them. Half of us apparently brainwashed to have voted for these novice presidents. You know, they were average 50 years old. They were not ready for presidency. They made all the mistakes. But in the meantime, look at the... Look at what China did. Look at what India did. Look at, for that matter, where I come from, Turkey did. They rose. They had 7, 8, 9, 10% GDP growth while we were not able to make it 3% growth, uh, especially in Obama time. We didn't even see anything. But they were making a 10% growth per year. So they rose up. They shut up. Uh, now, China is a fact because I wrote uh, my first book, Game Changer, and my second book, I emphasize this more, which is not published yet. In that book, I say China became nationalist in 2010, right around that. They announced that they have nothing to do with globalism anymore because they had taken enough from us, manufacturing and everything else. They didn't need us anymore. Uh, they didn't need us. They didn't need Germany anymore. They didn't need nobody. They became nationalists, 2010 on, openly, while we were still under Obama regime, uh, preaching globalism under Merkel. When Merkel came 2005, she was still beginning the globalism there on her own right. 
and while China was converting to nationalism. So by the time Trump came, talk about patriotism, nationalism, borders first and everything, it was a 10-year, uh, I mean, a six-year uh, late uh, after the announcement of China, uh, its real intentions. So in other words, they were not able to see, the other side was not able to see in 2016 what, what China was doing against us openly, brazenly, and uh, of course they don't know, they still don't know what China is doing now in 2020. Uh, I mean, they're gonna, they are going to increase that. Uh, uh, by the time I predict right now 15%, maybe we will have 14, 13, 12% by the time the 2024 elections come. Unfortunately, they're going to take up more, uh, more from our economy. Uh, it will go to the eastern economies. Uh, they'll grow faster and will 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 be stolen here. Well, you know, China is sitting really in the catbird seat at this point in time, especially with this administration. And they're supposed to be doing these talks up in Alaska between Biden administration and Chinese. It's not looking very good. And as it stands now, with the taxation plans that President Biden is proposing, already Ford said our newest line is not going to be manufactured anymore in the United States. We're moving it to Mexico. The next step would be over to India and then back into China. Now, the biggest problem with China is that any business that operates in China must have members of the Chinese Communist Party on its board. They must relinquish any of their intellectual property. So if we have the best widget in the world we're manufacturing here, it's cheaper to make it over with slave labor in China. Um, you have to hand over all the information on how you manufactured it, all the secrets. And guess what? Within a matter of months, Chinese are making that very same widget, kicking your butt out and saying, thank you, have a nice day. And they're in the catbird seat. And we're opening the door wide again. But, uh, but uh, this has been going on 24 years with Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama. Now, it stopped mm-hmm. with Trump for four years. But uh, you gave an example, and I'll give you another example. Uh, Bush started it. Obama continued it. They invested uh, on a project, F-35 aircraft project. Uh, this is an American fifth-generation well, aircraft, right? That was supposed to replace. Yeah, very good. Yeah, right. They were supposed the to re- replace the F-16, F-18, F-15, F-14s. Now, what happened is that Turkey, another rising Eastern power, also ally of the U.S., is uh, part of the manufacturing element, technology development, and all that. They are developing thousands of the 1,600 pieces that go to each plane Turkey is producing for F-35. And it is supposed to be the second biggest buyer of these aircrafts too. So, cut a long story short, here is the same example what we are doing. We are, right now, that factory, uh, Lockheed Martin factory, is not producing anymore F-35s because uh, because against the regime in power in America, administration in power, America is not able to handle it. 
the, the factory closed down early this year. I mean, stopped the production, and it will stop the production until 2035 or 2040. In the meantime, sample Google will give you all the information. Uh, U.S. needs these F-35s to replenish its aircraft, which cannot because no production. So they asked Lockheed Martin, who also produced the F-15s, to reopen the factory for all the planes so that the U.S. can buy these new versions of the old fourth-generation planes instead of fifth-generation. In the meantime, what is China doing? China is producing uh, J-35, which is the exact version of the F-35 stolen, you know, with the stolen data, and that uh, that that aircraft is now being marketed to a number of countries who are willing to buy different versions of it, and uh, they are filling the market uh, with the fifth generation planes. Meanwhile, we shut down the factory uh, production here, and in, in the meantime, Turkey. Well, that's another story. I don't want to go into it. But Turkey, who was forced out of the F-35 production, that's part of the problem of the, why we shut down the factory. Uh, Turkey is producing its own fifth-generation plane, and it will be ready uh, out of the hangars in two years and ready for sale uh, before F-35 factory can be open to 35 they'll, they'll start selling it by 2029 so the point is like you gave that example uh, other countries are taking technologies away from us our other technologies are coming up with additional technologies because they are continuously working harder manufacturing and generating like inventive they are being inventive and they are eating up from our economy, whether China eats it a little bit, India eats a little bit else, Turkey eats it a little bit from the other end, they are all eating up from the mothership, which we are. And that's what's happening with globalists in power. And that's what Trump was trying to stop it. Trump understood this. Trump said to Turkey, look, uh, let's make a deal that you made with Russia. Increase your trade from 10 billion to 100 billion. It's good for me if I increase bilateral trade. Turkey says, I am all for it. We have a $15, $20 billion trade. Let's increase it $100 billion. I'll sell you $50 billion worth of stuff. You sell me $50 billion worth of stuff. So the point is, our economy was going to grow equally or better in this bilateral agreement. And the other side, in this case, Turkey was happy. And it was going to be our technology. It was going to be our F-35 was going to fly. It was going to be we were going to go move to the sixth generation planes after the fifth generation fulfilling the ranks. And now we are on a limbo going back to the fourth generation F-15s just to make sure that we have an air force to fight the war that may be fought until 2040 whether the sixth generation comes, whether the fifth generation factory can reopen, and by then whether we can be competitive enough to produce these things compared to what China is producing, Russia is producing, Turkey is producing, or Europe will be producing. In other words, all these global...
world, on all these nationalists around the world, are eating on the U.S. economy, which is the mothership. That's what it is. I mean, it's, a, it's not one example, whether it's cars, whether it's planes, you can put this into missile technology, drone technology, or shipbuilding technology. I mean, the shipbuilding technology is incredible. China is incredibly going fast. Turkey is doing it. And what is the U.S. doing? There are so many little problems there that no one is talking about. And those problems are going to exacerbate under this regime because they are not doing what Trump is doing. What Trump was doing, whether we like Trump or not, doesn't matter. We, we are Americans. We care about this economy. But what Trump was doing, it was hurting us, the economy here. It was acting with the premise of nationalism, cross borders or whatever it is, so that you can harness what needs to be harnessed here. You can keep the economy growing or not being stolen from the economy, not being taken away. You know, today there's a 40 different uh, strategic materials in the world about, I don't know the numbers, but I wrote in the book, in my first book, Game Changer, 35 of them or so are in the hands of China. 35 or 32 of them are in, in the hands of China. We used to have control of those, most of those 40 strategic materials minerals or whatever, you know, uh, whatever they are. Uh, but the, right now, China controls them. You cannot manufacture anything in this country anymore because we gave all those rights. Uh, we sold it. Do you remember how Clinton administration sold the uranium rights to Russia or somebody? Uh, it was a big story, but no one talks about it. That's what the globalists do. They give it away to the other side. The other side accumulates. And now factories will continue to close under this situation. There's no other way, unfortunately. You know, there's, there's even more because not only have we ceded our economy to other nations, China has actually taken, actually devalued our military. You had mentioned the F-35s. Key components of the F-35s were being manufactured in China. Now, I know this because the Marine Corps Air Station is right down the street from me, and they were supposed to have these F-35s, which were grounded because of noxious gases that were coming into the contact, causing pilots to start to pass out. Um, The other key components in the craft were also manufactured by China, which gave them in-depth knowledge of our defenses. And you had mentioned drones. J-35. J-35 right. is the exact copy of the F-35, and they could not have built that fifth generation. Look, Russian fifth generation Su-57 is not into mass production yet. They have prototypes, and they are looking for a partner because they have issues on the engine or some other parts, and they cannot do it. And Europe doesn't have a fifth-generation plane. Nobody else. Only U.S. has a fifth-generation plane. China has a mass-produced fifth-generation plane now. Uh, where did it come from? Well, uh, it came from all the stolen data. You know, there is a gentleman in Russia right now, uh, right? Uh, I forgot his name. Uh, when he revealed all that data, uh, that's what. That's how China got it. China has access to everything F-35 has, like many other stuff. 
They have taken so much out of this country in the past 24 years. Bangalore is very empowered. I mean, when we made the deal, each deal we made with China, they took something. And in the 24 years, they had enough. So by 2010, they didn't need us anymore. They had everything. They said, okay, we are nationalists now. Uh, China is first, they said. And they started to move. Uh, I mean, uh, now they are at a, another stage of coming after us. They are building so many warships right now. Uh, we are talking about uh, J-35s, but they are building so many warships. They have more uh, warships than I think U- U.S. has right now, and they are going at a very fast. Uh, and they came to, I know from my expertise, they came to Eastern Mediterranean. You know, I was told, I don't know if it's correct or not, the the, the port in Israel, Haifa, is mm-hmm. bought by Chinese. Did you know that? Yes. Uh, they own then, a lot of ports. Even one that is a military base that don't they don't allow the military on in Connecticut. Be amazed how much property China owns in the United States alone, much less of course the globe. Then top yeah. on top of that, the port building uh, that they've been doing, they'll go into some place like Thailand and say, "Hey, listen, we think we can do a lot of trade with you if you let us build this port for you. It's your port." Yeah, really, right? And then the next thing knows is the price that gets paid by Thailand. Thailand loses control of that port, the same with Israel, with Haifa. Um, The road and bridges projects throughout uh, Africa, South America, and Central America, the Middle East. It's, It's amazing how China has invested itself and insinuated itself into the fabric around the rest of the globe and made it dependent upon its existence. Yes, it's, uh, they are in 60 countries, and they are, uh, they are shipping by, right now a train load of uh, uh, containers, right, from the uh, capital of China, Beijing to London goes in 15 days uh, by train. Before, it used to come in two, three months. Now it goes in 15 days and back. And uh, there is, I don't know how many trains that goes, but uh, these are, you know, incredible amount of trade. And the other one is coming through Pakistan. And all these trains, you know, main line goes through Turkey. That's why I know. And uh, the other one goes from Russia, but that is closed six months because of snow. Uh, rough conditions, but then they are building another one, like you mentioned, Port Gawadar in Pakistan on the Arabian Sea, and it comes directly from China to Pakistan. As you know, we are no longer in Pakistan. Uh, we break up the relationship with them. Uh, but the Gawadar Port of Pakistan comes all the ships, and then from there it will come to soon watch Iraq is going to be in the hands of China uh, because they are going to build a train uh, a train line from Basra to the Turkish border and connect to the Turkish mainland to bring the material to uh, London, uh, to Europe. So in other words, they have uh, already two operating lines bringing all the goods and all these countries, like you said, are we going to fix your railroad? We're going to fix your port. We're going to fix your airports and give us the full access. 
good. They have the access. Their container is moving back and forth, and they are feeding Europe. Yeah, we, you remember Marshall Plan? We used to feed Europe. That's how we got rich. Uh, then now China is going to feed Europe, and China is going to get rich, a um, lot richer than now. And then they built the railroads. Two of them are operational. The third one through Pakistan and Iraq is going to be operational. And Iran is going to cooperate with China on that thing. So everybody is cooperating over there because of their national interest. And everybody is cooperating against the U.S. And this is what President Trump was saying. I'm going to be operating bilaterally with each country who has a vested interest of the U.S. and their own interest. But in this case, no one is saying this. Uh, right now, I don't know what we are saying as a country. And because of that, China says that suits me well. I have relationship with 60 countries, integral relationship. I can ship anything to Africa. I can ship anything to Asia, anything to Europe. And that's all I need. And I'm uh, based on that, uh, I'm getting richer. And so long as the U.S. don't have, doesn't have these bilateral relationship with Turkey, uh, let's say, if if U.S. keeps the good relationship uh, with Turkey, well, that breaks the Chinese uh, Chinese one of the ch- Chinese train lines to Europe. It stops it. And uh, but uh, no one is paying attention to that. We are thinking globally. I don't know what we are thinking globally. It doesn't make sense to me. And while everybody else thinking nationally, all our adversaries are thinking nationalist policies. They are making us think globalist policies, which makes these nationalist countries benefit at our expenses. At our expense. That's as simple as that. There's, I mean. Uh, not a complicated thing to understand. And uh, even Israel, when he, when they gave Haifa to China because they said China has money, China is giving me money. The U.S. is not giving me money. Israel says, and rightly so. Uh, Israel has to survive. It requires. It has to have a national interest. It has to take care of. His national interest is to make a bilateral deal with China or India or Turkey or whatever country, like we are supposed to be making a bilateral deal with Israel, with Turkey, with India, with China, so that we can, uh, I don't know, serve our own interests. No, we are not doing that. And uh, there is, I mean, it's, 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 the facts are there. There's nothing to discuss about that. So. That's why we came to, I mean, that's why we stopped doing fighting for one America because we don't want to impose anymore our own, you know, this side is right, this side is wrong. Let's figure it out. I mean, let let everybody fi- try to figure it out. Uh, we are struggling now for one America because, um, okay, let you figure it out. There is no port that serves our interests. Our warships cannot go Haifa anymore because you cannot put uh, U.S. warships into Haifa. Haifa that's owned by Chinese. They will steal everything. So uh, U.S. warships cannot go to the Turkish ports. So let's figure it out what to do with this. How can we get these warships go to our friendly ports? 
Turkey, Israel, uh, etc., uh, or for that matter, Pakistan. It is. We have to figure that out. Uh, unless those warships go there, we cannot sell stuff there because uh, your businessmen cannot go there if you cannot go there and protect your businessmen or your tunnels. When the harm comes, you know, I mean, everything is correlated. Uh, so we are pushed out in the name of globalism, and we are in oblivion, in a sense. Well, there's a third monkey wrench to throw into the mix here, because we talked about economics, we talked about military. However, we now have Hewa. Hewa wants to give us the 5G. They already manufacture uh-huh. a lot of our smart devices. They already are are into the artificial intelligence, face recognition, speech recognition. Now that they give us the Hewa, they then control the rest of the World Wide Web. So they will attack well, us. It, it you know Hewa's deal, right? You know Hewa's deal. You know what Trump did with Hewa, right? And he put the he went after CEO in Canada, and they made so much uh, noise. Uh, those who don't like Trump's uh, philosophy or actions. But Hewa uh, is like any other conglomerate all over the world. Hewa is everywhere in Asia, everywhere in Africa, and trying to be everywhere in Europe, giving that thing as well as the U.S., like any other multinational corporation would do. They are everywhere. But there are certain countries that stopped Hewa coming, operating in their countries. Again, I'm an expert of Turkey, of that region. I know that Turkey noticed this thing in 2010 or so, exactly when nationalism uh, was adopted, preached by China openly, for those who wants to hear it, who wanted to hear it. And Turkey says, hold on a second, Hewa is not good for me. Why don't I create my own version of Hewa? You know, all those 5G systems. Turkey has a 5G system already. Turkey is much less developed than the U.S., much, much less, but has a Hewa of their own, originally, indigenously developed. Every 100 kilometers in Turkey, there is a 5G post someplace, so you can have this communication. In the U.S., you don't have as sophisticated, and like you said, it's infused with Hewa and others. And China, in the meanwhile, operating in other countries who cannot counter China. So um, right now we are probably, I don't know, under this administration, probably Hewa has a free hand to come and operate in America. Do you have that information? So, uh, if they are operating comfortably enough back in the U.S.? Well, I don't think they're fully operational. I think there are some areas that they have a toe in, but not yet fully. So okay. there's a lot of people fighting against them coming in. Well, they will come in now. They will because unless you really stop them, like Turkey did. Turkey decided. They said, "Okay, this is not good for me. I'm going to prevent it." And prevented it. Okay, railroad is coming through Turkey because Turkey benefits it, right? Bilateral. But on Hewa, I'm not going to let you control my uh, communications. That's it. So they stopped that. Uh, what is good for them, they allowed. And the U.S. has to do that. That's the national interest. 
if an immigrant is coming and is good for us, we accept it. If an immigrant is not good for us, we don't accept it. You have to manage it. There is a management system of something. It's not a not everybody can do whatever they want. So you have to have some sort of a control of it in the technology wise. I mean, in certain parts, you share the technology. That's nothing wrong with this. But certain other technologies, you have to keep it for yourself uh, to protect your national interest. Unfortunately, we don't have that clear line in the U.S. at this time. Just, uh, at this time, it is all taken away, like I say, everybody is eating from the mothership until uh, we are no longer the mothership, you know. You know, can I ask something? <laughs> Real quick. Yeah, go ahead. I thought you fell asleep, Curtis. <laughs> oh no. What what made Trump unique to me as a president is because of his biz, you know business background and his dealings with um, different countries and even our Congress. You know, he has had to deal with all of them. And unlike, say, like a Bill Clinton, who sold a lot of, of technology to China. And he didn't really have um, the interests of America at heart. With Trump, his perspective has always been one from um, how is this good for the United States? You know, how is this good for America? And, you know, before he would deal with other, you know, entities and corporations and countries. And I think that's, that, that's, that's something we sorely miss because a lot of our presidents, um, some of them have a business background, but not like this guy. That's well, that's all I, I want to add. I am I am in the belief that uh, all three presidents, right? These three presidents that we picked, uh, fifty years old, Clinton, uh, Bush, and Obama, they are uh, imposed on us. Why it is imposed? Because we picked somebody from Arkansas, known for womanizing elements. Right, the state police and all that stories. It was humanizing. And we brought this uh, young, nice-looking president to White House to the Oval Office just to uh, just to bring down morality in America. I mean, whatever the scandal took place and all the stories came out of Oval Office, and it reflected that some that the the powers to be outside who hate us wanted to target the morality issue in America, which they were successful with Clinton. Then they imposed on us another inexperienced person, George Bush, 43, and they played to his emotions of vengeance for his father just to deplete our military. I mean, look, uh, the wars are not fought directly with missiles. Wars are fought with uh, deceptions. So the deception was let's elect this guy with a vengeance, and he cannot see any further than that, and let him deplete the military, which he did. Uh, that's the result. I mean, it's, it's the result tells us. Then we got Obama. Who's Obama? Is a. I mean, we know Obama. We wrote the book, uh, Mama Sarah Obama: Our Dreams and uh, Roots, and we spent time with the Obama family. They came and stayed in our home for two months. When we wrote the book, we know so much about Obamas. We like them in the sense that as a family, as individuals, as human beings. But uh, on the other hand, he was not ready for president. 
his grandma told us, told us me, uh, that what he said to Barack Obama, the 44th president of the U.S., when we were with him, he said, to, he asked me, Mom, Grandma, I'm going to run for president. Do you know what this 90-year-old, 80-year-old big woman in Africa said to us in Kogelo, near Uganda border at her home? She said, I told him, son, you should stay a little bit more senator, gain a little bit more experience before you go to bigger places. Unfortunately, he didn't listen, and unfortunately, we were gullible enough to vote an experienced person, and unfortunately, he had shortcomings, and that's why he was imposed on us as a president with shortcomings. He did not have any knowledge about economy. You remember Larry Sanders, I think Larry Sanders was his name. He was his secretary, treasury secretary. He was a brilliant Harvard man, and he left a year or two later. And, you know, uh, his Geithner. frustration was. Huh? Yeah. Well, Bill, um, I've got my next guest in on the line. Um, you and Daphne have this great film out there called Hollywood. I'm sorry, Trump versus Hollywood, that people can find at Fighting, the number four, FightingForOneAmerica.com. The book is coming out next month, um, and we're going to have to have you come back on after I read the book. Definitely. Uh, always great to be with you. and um, look forward to next time. All right, and Daphne, All right. you'll updates and keep, I'll keep you laughing, Daphne. All right? <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. All right. God bless. All right. Take care. Let's bring on our next guest here, and I do believe uh, this is David Ditch with the Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon, David. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I have to apologize. We're doing stuff a little old school here today. I've had some sort of technical difficulties, so just bear with me as I pull my notes apart. Now, you're a research associate at the Grober M. Harriman Center for the Federal Budget, so you're the man that knows all about money. <laughs> and boy, what the heck is going on with the budget today? Has this this world gone upside down? Um. Unfortunately, this is just the extreme end point of a of many many years of irresponsibility by our elected officials in Washington D.C. And unfortunately, things can still get a lot worse. That, that's a scary part because I'm looking at the article you wrote uh, dealing with infrastructure, and when I read that article, I just my eyes just popped out. Now, this is Nasty Pelosi's idea of controlling infrastructure. Now, infrastructure sounds like such a marvelous word, and why wouldn't the federal government be involved with infrastructure? Look at Hoover, who built all the roads across America so we can travel from New York to California. Instead of taking weeks and months, it takes a matter of a couple of days. How wonderful infrastructure is. But this is so... Um, Incepted in its control of local issues, not federal issues, but this comes down into the actual school district. That's scary. Yeah, so it, starting in you know, around the 1950s, uh, really ramped up under Eisenhower, uh, the federal government really got involved in building the interstate system. You know, back then, a, 
a lot of western states just didn't have the resources to build the highways. Now we've got the highways. We can move goods and people coast to coast and border to border, and it really helps the economy. What the uh, majority in both the House and the Senate are looking to do is rather than focusing on things that benefit the entire country, they want to pour trillions of dollars that we don't have, by the way, but this is all going on the national credit card, and they want to spend it on things that should be the responsibility of local governments. You know, people run for mayor, they run for you know, county government, they run for city council. They're in charge of making sure that schools are you know, up to snuff, that you know, the, the sewers and the water systems are good. And what Democrats want to do is say, okay, well, we like those things, and if we like those things, the federal government should be spending money on it, which means we're going to be turning more power and more control over to Congress when they can't handle – they can't even – begin to handle the government we have right now. Well, the question is, is how the heck are you going to get that pothole fixed in front of your house if the federal government is in charge of that road, which is probably your local city town or county road, and even the state doesn't have authority over it, but you're going to cede all of your control and power over local issues to Congress. And, and they might say, okay, well, oh, Congre- Congress isn't going to be in charge of everything. They just want to help with the financing. The problem is that they get to set up the rules of what gets financed. They set up a review process. They set up rules that help make it more expensive to do the project. So, for example, you need to use union labor and pay scales. You, they set rules on what you can buy for raw materials. The, you know, the, all the bureaucracy adds to delays. The more we put in ch- the federal government in charge of, even if it's, quote, unquote, only the financing, the slower things are going to be, the more expensive they are, and the more dysfunctional the, co- the country is going to be. Because, frankly, if, when I think about levels of government, the most dysfunctional – is federal. You know, uh, I, I keep on thinking back to the story I, I love to tell. Um, I, I'm i in the hurricane zone, all right, and there is an intersection where traffic during a hurricane evacuation gets reversed. Well, there was no traffic control device there save for a stop sign on two sides. And someone in their genius thing said, well, why don't we put up a traffic circle? And I happened to be going through the intersection. I see it being surveyed. So I called my county councilman, and I said, you know, Paul, what's going on over here? Oh, they're going to put a traffic circle in there. And I said, how much is that going to cost? He goes, oh, about $6.5 million. But don't worry, the state's paying for it. And that's, the, and, and that's a perfect example if it was up to town or county government and they had to fork over $6.5 million for one stupid traffic circle, they would have been laughed out. You would have had plenty of voters calling them out for a waste of money. But when it's, when it's coming from, the, from a higher level of government like the state or the federal government, 
then it's a lot easier for politicians to get away with bad spending choices because they look at it as free money. Yeah, my money, not free money. And I also challenged him. I said, well, you know, Paul, I looked up, you know, to see what an average cost of a traffic light would be, and it would be about only $10,000. You'd have to have to re-erect that traffic light. I can't tell you how many times before you even come close to that $6.5 million. I mean, I would be dead and buried by the time you even came close. So why don't we just put up a traffic light? now so we can still reverse the traffic but yeah. no no don't worry about it the state's paying for it and, and this is and what, what we're going to be facing and one of the things that happens so often is that politicians view view it as a good thing the more money that's being spent the better the, they get to tout themselves and act like they're being generous to the public, they're showering gifts on the public when the only way that they can get that money that's being spent is by taking it out of the economy or borrowing against future generations that aren't even born yet. Let's just take a million dollars. It takes 20 people getting up every morning, every day, going into work, putting in that nine-to-five grind to get $50,000. You've got to take the work of 20 people to generate $1 million. When government starts when at the federal level, they start talking about a billion dollars, that's 20,000 people. When they talk about a trillion dollars, that's 20 million people. And they want to spend up to $4 trillion with their next legislative package. These numbers are mind-boggling, and the costs are real, and the costs matter because it takes human lives and effort to make this money in the economy. Which only ends to one thing, increasing taxes. Gee, uh, originally when we got the income tax passed uh, as a constitutional amendment, it was only supposed to be the top 1% that would ever pay it. Local little guys like you and me would never have to pay income tax. Well, guess what? That's not what happened, is it? Yeah, the, and you not only have now an income tax that hits, I don't know how many tens of millions of people a year. You have payroll taxes that hit even more people. You have taxes on investment, you have taxes on businesses, you have taxes on goods and services like gasoline, and now for the grand plans that congressional Democrats are cooking up right now, they're looking to raise taxes on, for example, they, they would love to impose a carbon tax. That would increase the cost of practically every single thing that we buy. And it's really going to hammer households that are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Now you throw in the $15 an hour minimum wage and how many jobs will be lost. When they first started proposing this, and I would see the picket signs outside of McDonald's, and my co-host will tell you that I have been saying this for years, as soon as you do that, out goes the employee incomes automation. And what happens now? Lo and behold, Taco Bell's, Burger King, McDonald's, all these fast food places have kiosks 
in place of where it would have been someone saying, welcome to McDonald's, how can I help you? And this goes right back to we need to have policy set at the most local level possible because you have so many members of Congress coming from Manhattan, coming from from places like San Francisco where the wages are really high, cost of living is really high. $15 an hour is about as low as you can go to, to you know put food on the table. But for most of the country – the cost of living is lower. The cost that businesses can afford is a lot lower. $15 an hour is going to be devastating across the Midwest, across the Appalachians, across the South. And it would be devastating. There's no need to have the federal government set it. State governments and, and local governments can set the minimum wage appropriately for their own conditions. When you try to make it into one-size-fits-all and act as though the only way we can address problems is through Washington, D.C., the more likely we're going to end up with big problems in rural areas that cannot afford things like a $15 minimum wage. Well, in the end, it's going to be the little guys out in the rural areas that you know, are, subs- are subsisting being forced into urban areas where the jobs are, where there now is public transportation rather than having your own vehicle and freedom to travel when and where you want. Um, they force you now into these shoeboxes in urban areas, and they control you now. And what happens there? You no longer have a conservative, Republican, or Libertarian voter. You now have a generational Democratic voters. It, it, it is really something to watch the left's anti-automobile agenda at work. And it's also amazing to me to see how completely disconnected from reality a lot of them are. Again, people who grew up in New York City, in their mind – you can have trains and buses and mass transit, and that's how you can move people around. But there's nowhere else in the country that's anywhere near as dense as New York where transit really makes sense. And you have all these other cities across the country where transit programs are mostly just a jobs program, a way to provide a little something-something for labor unions that are part of, of urban political machines – And when you dig into the numbers, for example, in Atlanta, a typical metro metro transit worker is making $90,000. Now, I can't say I've spent a ton of time in Georgia, but I know $90,000 is a heck of a lot of money in Atlanta for work that is blue-collar in nature. That's two, two two-and-a-half blue-collar workers' worth of pay just because they happen to be a politically favored group. You go to New York City and a transit worker is making $150,000, and that's all made possible because of all the subsidies that these groups get from the federal government. And what the Democrats want to do is funnel more money into these government labor unions, and then we know who those labor unions are going to end up supporting on Election Day. Oh, sure. And guess what that got them? <laughs> We're finding jobs are being cut and labor unions are getting hit 
the hardest with these job losses, especially like the Keystone Pipeline. So, yeah, go ahead, vote for that Democratic politician like Joe Biden or Nasty Pelosi. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll charm your butt off, but once they're in office, they'll cut your head off. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it's also interesting how the difference between the favoritism towards one type of unionized employee, one type of blue-collar worker, and another one. There's absolutely no regard for the consequences, for the costs of these actions. The way they will target industries like the the energy sector, which provides real value to the American public. I mean, energy costs have absolutely plummeted over the last couple decades thanks to all the innovations, thanks to all the hard work of all those blue-collar workers making, you know, you know, developing natural gas and oil so that we are more energy independent as well. We aren't as dependent on OPEC, which has really undercut a lot of power of some of these foreign governments. And rather than be happy with all that progress, all these good-paying jobs – now they're trying to destroy those good-paying jobs in the private sector that benefit the entire country by producing energy. And instead, they want to subsidize trans, something like transit that only 1% or 2% of people outside of New York City ever use to help give lavish compensation packages to those union workers. Uh, it's a corrupt system from top to bottom. And at one point, Trump was starting to clean it up, but uh, I guess he ruffled too many feathers, so hence you get Biden. <laughs> and Biden just turns around and proves he's the exact opposite of what they really wanted. They needed someone like Trump. Now, they also have this PRO Act they're trying to push through where they actually take an independent contractor and put them permanently out of business. These Uber drivers, uh, these to-go uh, meal deliveries, uh, you have a person that will transcribe medical transcripts for uh, practices that work out of their homes will be put permanently out of business. That's a whole sector of our economy that is going to be trashed. And what really blows my mind is just last year, the state of California, which is uh, the model of progressivism, their voters had an opportunity to say directly, not the legislators, the voters had a referendum as to whether they wanted a law like that in, in effect or whether they wanted to protect the gig workers, the gig economy, protect people's economic freedom and the ability to choose a more flexible work schedule. The voters of California rejected what Congress is trying to shove down our throats in the form of the PRO Act. If California doesn't want it, how does it make sense to impose it on states like South Carolina or Indiana or Utah that definitely don't want it? <laughs> no, it it's, it's like the zoo is running it. The animals in the zoo are running it, not the, the handlers. And it's gone really, really out of control. And you've also written several, I mean, you've got fantastic articles up on the Daily Signal as well as up on Heritage.org um, where you break apart the COVID relief package and you point out seven things that we should know about it that is deeply flawed. 
you know, less than 9% of it is actually going to help with COVID. And you, you look at the, 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 the stuff that's in here, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And yet they passed it. Yeah. And even 9% is being extremely generous. I, when I dug into the numbers, I would put it at closer to 5% because there's lots of money that's sort of generic medical spending that isn't even that targeted at COVID. And when they started this whole process, they said that we need to spend this money to fight COVID. The thing is that we already spent $4 trillion last year dealing with the pandemic, dealing with the economy. A lot of that spending I didn't agree with, but some of it I did. For example, some of that money helped to fund the work that went into the vaccines, and those vaccines are absolutely crucial to really crushing this stupid disease once and for all. But then the election happens, and suddenly that $4 trillion apparently didn't happen. If you listened to the rhetoric coming out of Washington, D.C., we didn't do anything for anybody, and thus we needed to spend another $1.9 trillion. And guess what? That money has a cost. That cost is between fourteen and $15,000 per household. And then we get a check for $1,400, and we're supposed to be grateful. But it's our money. Yeah, how nice to give it back to us. Yeah. <laughs> I and give you $10, you give me one back. The thing that really makes me, I mean, genuinely upset. And and I'm someone who's been dealing with policy. I deal with numbers. I'm usually a pretty low-key guy, but I'm genuinely upset about some of the things that they've spent money on. And again, it's important to put a context on the cost of these things. They are giving about $90 billion to bail out underfunded pension plans for the private sector which is a problem that's been going back for years. People have been talking about how we want to handle it. It has nothing to do with the pandemic. It's a pure political power move, and they're spending about as much on that one thing as they did on testing and vaccines to actually fight COVID. Another giveaway is they're spending $170 billion on education. They say this is to reopen schools, but because of all the money that was passed last year, schools aren't even going to start spending this new money until next year, and they're going to be spending more five and six years from now than they are this year out of what's in this latest package, which says it's not about actually reopening schools. It's a handout because teachers' unions are a major constituent group of the Democratic Party. Well, if you take those two things, to pay for it, you would have to take every penny produced in the economy of South Carolina this year, and you actually would come up short. Mm-hmm. Now, i got to tell you something. You and I have a mutual friend. Um, I haven't seen him since he left Congress uh, when he was defeated by Beer Can Joe, uh, but Mark Sanford Uh, I've known him for a long number of years. Were you working for him when he pulled the pig stunt? 
I was not working for him. I interned for him when he uh, in 2013, though, on Capitol Hill. Ah, okay. All right. Well, when he announced his candidacy and he was up in Somerville, uh, Amy Kramer was getting all the Tea Party groups together to try to get him to, you know, for his campaign. And I was the one that introduced him. I was sitting there in blue jeans, and Amy came over, grabbed me, and she says, nope, you got to introduce Mark. So I've known him for a long number of years. Uh, so, yes, so we got a mutual friend there. Yeah, it was really interesting to watch him be willing to take some really tough and, frankly, unpopular votes because he was willing to stick to his guns. Yeah, yeah. Well, now we've got uh, Nancy Mace. And I haven't spoken to him, in, like I said, in a while since he left Congress, but uh, I liked him. I mean, his mom used to go to my church, and his brother still does, so <laughs> we're, we're buddies. We're buddies. And, and one of the really unfortunate things, and I, I, I can't disparage Congresswoman Mace because I, I don't know her. I don't know what her voting record is. There are so few members of Congress who take – Finan- the, the country's financial health and acting responsibly with our tax dollars seriously. And it doesn't matter which party. There are so many, unfortunately, so many Republicans who are very comfortable with increasing the national debt as long as they can tout a few political wins on the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, when he was looking at bills and stuff like that, I would be texting him. <laughs> so. Mark, which way are you going on this? <laughs> and the, anyway, oh, I'm, oh. I'm sorry, we're down to our last four minutes, so I, I, I've got to close it out. The show is going so fast, so fast at all. As a matter of fact, my co-host has been sitting quietly in the background just listening in. But, uh, David, people can, find you, <laughs> people can find you at heritage.org. We're your research associate over there for the federal budget. You do a lot of hard work. There's great articles about why we should be concerned about the uh, deficit and what is going on now in Congress. And you lay out excellent articles with graphs and pictures so people who that can't read can read the graphs. <laughs> we have to have you back on. I really appreciate that. And, again, I, sometimes it, it can get dispiriting. I think the only way that this is going to get fixed is if politicians realize that the public is going to hold them accountable and hold their feet to the fire. Um, that we definitely have to do. We definitely have to do that. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, and have a blessed weekend. You too. Bye. All right. Take David, Ditch, check him out over at heritage.org. He's got excellent articles over there. Uh, we managed to wallow our way through the show here, uh, Curtis, and uh, that's all I got for now. And it went pretty fast, really. I mean, the yeah, it did. Speakers, our it guest did. speakers were were fantastic. You know, they kept yep. it moving. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to close out the show with Jeremy Dodge and his song "Stand Up." So until then, I say good night. God bless. And we'll see you same bad time, same bad station next week. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Yeah.
But I think it's time we ask ourselves if we still know the freedoms that were intended for us by the founding fathers. Ooh, Ask what you can do for your country. 